Hello, Duck Hunters, and welcome to the first episode of the Shooting Time Podcast with your host, Phil Conkey. So before we get going on this first episode, I just want to take a few minutes here and kind of give you a little bit about what you can expect to hear on this series of podcasts. So no doubt, if you're listening to this, you are most likely interested in ducks or duck hunting at some level, and that's, of course, what the main focus of this podcast is going to be about. I myself, I've been duck hunting since I was seven years old, which for those that are wondering, that was 34 years ago. And it's been a strong enough influence in my life that almost everything I do revolves around ducks or duck hunting at some point. So I was a guest, let's see, a few years ago on a podcast, and I kind of realized how enjoyable it really was just to sit down and chat about waterfowl and waterfowl hunting you know, with people that maybe have different... Um, experiences than I do. So this has been a project I've been meaning to get going for quite a while and finally pulled the trigger on it. So I'm hoping that everybody enjoys it. Uh, my guests are going to come from like, all aspects of the waterfall world. Since my interest in ducks goes you know, beyond just hunting them, I'll be sitting down with people like today's guest, Ryan Askren, who is a PhD student with a focus on waterfall-related subjects. We'll be sitting down with photographers who capture not only the ducks, but those scenes that just scream duck hunting and duck hunting passion, you know, they're ones who fill the pages of magazines and our social media feeds constantly with great images. I'll be talking with guys that have hunted some of the most historic places in waterfall history. Uh, we'll be chatting with dog trainers, duck and goose callers, and guys that just like to hunt and the guys that do it well. Uh, we're going to talk about duck boats, boat blinds, field blinds, permanent blinds, duck and goose calls, decoys, all those other things, the things aspect too, that really make a duck hunter as crazy as we are. And one thing I'm really excited about is as we get going on the season, uh, we're going to have some, I guess you'd say live from the blind type podcast. Um, I think those will be really cool. We've got a few of those lined up already. So hopefully that's something that people enjoy listening to as well. We're going to focus for the most part on our hunting discussions on hunts that are readily accessible to the general public. And what I mean by that is that most of our talks are going to be talking about public land hunts or places, um, not including clubs or guide services. As, I mean, personally, I do probably 90% of my waterfowl hunting on some sort of public land. So to me, that's very important. Um, but I also don't want to rule out that we're going to talk with some guides um, we might talk with some lodge owners, things like that, because that is, in reality, a very large facet of the waterfall world itself. And there's a lot of knowledge that those people have um, and advice to other hunters and maybe to people that are wanting to pursue that um, line of work in their future. So we'll have those guys on as well, but the focus is going to be on public land hunting. So as you've seen, the name of the show is the Shooting Time Podcast. Um, I chose that name as it's kind of a play on on two aspects of my life that are both very important, one being the duck hunting side of life, but also the waterfall photography side of my life. I feel like photography itself has really opened up um, kind of a new perspective into ducks, you know, and just their daily interactions with me. And we're for sure going to spend a considerable amount of time talking about both hunting and photography, and who knows what else comes up in our conversations. Now, if you've ever read any of my posts or my blogs or anything like that, you know, you'll you'll see that I'm not really a whack them and stack them kind of duck hunter. Um, although I guess I do feel I'm fairly proficient at that side of it. 
Um, but that's really not the focus of my duck hunting. Um, really hasn't been since I was younger. If you were to put it into the five classical stages of, of a duck hunter's progression, uh, I guess I, I would say that I'm a method hunter, meaning that the method of my hunting is probably the most important to me. Um, it kind of really has always been that way. And it's oftentimes to the uh, disgruntlement of some of my past hunting friends because I've always been so focused on wanting to hunt a cool spot, wanting to hunt over water, and really valuing that over going out and just shooting a limit. But with that said, you know, there's really nothing better than shooting a limit of, for me, greenheads and doing it the way I love it, which is trafficking mallards over the top of our heads with big decoy spreads, lots of duck calling, and pulling those birds down right on top of the decoys, all out of one of my boat blinds. So for me, that's about as good as life gets right there. With that all said, um, since you've made it this far, we're going to get going on our first episode. Um, today's guest is Ryan Askren. He's a duck hunter, a photographer, and I'd call him a waterfowl scientist. He's just a great guy. He's got a ton of knowledge about waterfowl species and behaviors. He's currently pursuing his PhD at the University of Illinois, and his focus um, there is on the behaviors of urban geese in that area, something I think a lot of folks who hunt geese maybe would be interested in. Uh, I guess you could say I met Ryan through his Instagram page, and you know, after I watched his page for a while, I kind of realized he seemed like a guy I really wanted to get to know and have a chat with someday. So we sent a lot of messages back and forth, and then uh, once I got this rolling, I decided I wanted him to be the first, if not one of the first um, guests I had. So on this podcast, I was joined by my friend Bill Bartz. Um, he's from Waseca, Minnesota, which is my hometown. We have shared a lot of really cool hunting experiences together. Bill's a great co-host. He has a lot of experience hunting all over the country. He's also an observer of waterfowl in the same sense that I am, that he's always wondering about their behavior and just their daily activities. So we had some really good conversations with Ryan about his hunting, his photos, and I think especially some really cool information about ducks and geese as well. So I hope you guys enjoy this one as much as we did, and let's take them. here for the what could possibly the, be the first episode of the Shooting Time podcast with Phil Conkey as the host. Um, we're not sure how release dates are going to roll out here, so this may or may not be the first one you're going to listen to, but <laughs> we are sitting here in my basement uh, with myself, Phil Conkey, uh, a friend of mine, Mr. Bill Bartz, yep. and we will have Ryan Askren on here in just a bit. So. Um, Ryan is a amazing waterfall photographer, a duck hunter, and a wildlife ecologist. 
soon to be. I guess he is I'm, already. I'm definitely those last two. <laughs> well, and I'm going to take a minute here and Phil can just edit this out if he wants to, but you would call yourself an ecologist, not a biologist, right? Yes. In your opinion, can you just quick tell the difference? Yeah. So ecologist is much more focused on kind of how a animal organism more broadly interacts with its environment. So it's not just looking at that kind of individual species level it's a lot broader than that okay okay yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah how about like how about just for people who maybe don't get it a specific do you have like anything specific difference that like what a biologist would study in terms of duck related stuff versus what an ecologist would study Ooh. Uh, so i mean most waterfowl guys are going to be more on the ecologist side uh, but like, for instance, physiology of a duck. So how a duck digests something would be straight, like organismal, organismal biology, uh, rather than ecology. Whereas, oh, uh, temperature affects habitat use of ducks, uh, in the Mississippi Valley, uh, it's definitely more of a applied ecology type type focus okay that makes sense yeah a little more narrow path yeah right right all right so i actually was i guess introduced to ryan as probably most of my guests will be at some point um, (laughs) through through instagram um as most people i assume most people who follow me probably follow ryan um i think we our pages are very close to each other and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you don't follow him at one really good place, as if you're listening to this, and you just kind of want to see what we're talking about. Check him out um, on Instagram at just Ryan Askren. That's A S K R E N for some cool photos. And we'll probably talk about some of his photos as we get going. Um, but I guess I, since this is more of a, a just a waterfowl based podcast, and I think the, the thing that brings most any of us into the photography realm is waterfowl hunting. Yeah. Um, that's how me and Bill really, we wouldn't know each other if it wasn't for waterfowl hunting. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was, I've seen a lot of those memes going around the internet lately that talk about how the amount of great people that you've met because you're chasing ducks or something to that extent. And I think that's pretty much true in my life. I don't have a lot of friends that aren't at least relook interested in ducks if not duck hunters at some point so um so we're just going to want to talk about one thing for sure just get a feel for how your duck hunting what your duck hunting history is how you got started um, who got you into it all that kind of stuff like what what brought you into kind of where you're at in the duck world today yeah right uh yeah so i'm i've been incredibly blessed uh to have a dad that's just been incredibly supportive of all my addictions and shares a lot of the same uh, interests. And I really, even as a kid, man, I, I was fascinated by guns, like not in a bad uh, kind of mass shooter type way, but just always really interested in, even as a little kid, like I was making them out of Legos and stuff. Uh, I was always fascinated with birds. Like my parents, if there was a book I wanted, they, they would pretty much always buy it for me. Uh, and I had multiple bird, animal, 
uh, kind of outdoor books, even at a really young age and kind of got clear. My dad hadn't hunted since college, really. Uh, he had done some with his brother when he was in college and I kind of, kind of got him back into it. I mean, kind of relit that fire. We started going together when I was, gosh, probably 11 or 12. So yeah, that's, that's really where it started in Eastern Iowa. Cool. What was the, so that was, that was probably what, 10, less than 15 years ago, probably. <laughs> uh, not, not quite yeah. 16 years ago, 16. 18 years ago. Okay. Oh, so you're older yeah. than I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting up there now. Yeah. You got some skin in the game. <laughs> cool. So you were, you were, you started duck hunting when the population had kind of come back from some of the, the decreases of the late eighties, early nineties. Right. Right. Yeah. And it, uh, so it was definitely kind of an upswing, uh, especially at a, a larger time scale. Uh, but Eastern Iowa can be pretty rough. It's, uh, I always got like 3% of its existing wetlands intact. Uh, so there's just not a whole lot of habitat, especially out East, uh, Western Iowa can be pretty incredible. So it was, I mean, it was a big deal if we shot a duck in a day. I went a lot of mornings without firing a shot. Uh, the highlight of pretty much every season was going out and killing our two wood ducks opening day in the early season. And that was that was what I ran on for a long time. And I mean, we'd go out the rest of the year, but it's usually pretty slow. Wood ducks as the driving factor. That's a lot of Minnesota hunters, too, are the same. I yeah, would say. for sure. Yeah. A lot of people's first ducks were... Hen, hen, hen or ducks. hen wood duck, yeah, hen wood ducks sure. yeah. coming in at about fifty miles an hour. Yeah, yeah, that was that was my first. Did you did you have a lot of pressure on this limited amount of areas to hunt? Oh yeah, yeah. There, uh, there's definitely a pretty strong waterfowl hunting culture uh, along Mississippi. There, especially Lake Odessa was one of the big national wildlife refuges close by, and uh, there were a lot of people that hunted that and elsewhere. Not quite as commercialized as I'm. I'm in Illinois now, and the Illinois River Valley uh, is incredibly commercialized. Lots of private property, and really very little kind of quality public land other than drawing for blinds. So we always had access. I mean, we could go out every day and have a shot, which is a little different than Illinois yeah, now. You but, at least yeah. got to hunt, right? Right. That's one of the nice things about at least the. I guess you'd call the Upper Midwest. I don't know what. Illinois is technically considered, but yeah. kind of these upper Midwest states, at least you're going to go and you're going to be able to hunt somewhere. Like you don't have to go to a, a booth and pull a number and hopefully. No, like growing up for me, I didn't do any of that. Yeah, no, never. That was, oh yeah. Minnesota, it was super limited where that was one spot where that could be South Dakota. Of course, that's never an issue. Oh yeah. So we don't have to, we don't have to bother with that. Both of us, <laughs> we're both from Minnesota, Southern Minnesota originally. Southern so. central Minnesota. South yeah. central. Oh, okay. <clears throat> So we have, oh, neat. we have kind of a feel for what the Iowa thing is like. Our wetland situation isn't as dire as Iowa's. Right. That one of our jokes was always that you'd see people from Iowa's vehicles piled up around the lakes in, in <laughs> our hometown of Wasika, all to catch bullheads simply because there's no lakes. So a few lakes <laughs> in Wasika and no one else would fish the lakes from home, but there was this be 25 blue, blue license plates lined up around the the junky lakes in town. So, mm -hmm. yep. Yep. The blue platers. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, some, for some reason in South Dakota, 
Minnesotans are called the blue platers, which I haven't quite figured out because they're not really blue. They're white and blue. Whereas yeah. Iowa had that straight up old blue <laughs> for a long time. So I was always confused at who the heck people were talking about with blue players. Yeah. I've since figured that out. And mm-hmm. I, have yeah. a, I have a little more respect for the blue players, though, since I'm one of them. Since yeah. you're originally one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Everybody's got got some enemy or some something to grumble about. Mm-hmm. Oh, every, yeah. Every state Boy. has to have Iowa, Iowa was the uh, butt of many Minnesota jokes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always, a, it's usually the state south, too. Like, I, for Iowa, it was Missouri. We well, made I think, see, that's what's going through my brain right now, is it, it might all be perspective, too. Because, you know, it, everyone wants to go somewhere different than where they're at, because they think it might be better. Yeah, like right. the northern state maybe just, like, perceived as more pure, perceive themselves as more pure, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, better. Or this is better. They're a little further away from the crowd of people, maybe. Yeah, who knows? So it is interesting. So we were. So since this is the first time we're getting this, I kind of wanted even just to run through my like intro to hunting, and then Bill's too. Yeah, Yeah. you better go first, so Phil. So like for me, I mean the whole my whole intro to waterfall started probably when I was like six or seven years old, and. I noticed my dad getting ready to go one year and I didn't, you know, I was young enough that I kind of knew what was going on, but didn't exactly know. So I'm getting camo out and getting decoys out and he had a ton of old herders decoys and just the story of all is I'm 41 years old. Um, so this is geez, like 35 years ago that I was watching all this happen. Long, long yeah, time ago. Really long time ago. <laughs> and so I saw all this happening. I didn't get to go with the first year. Um, he hunted with some buddies then. he had kind of a, like a big group of guys and I didn't go with them. And I think that next year when I was like six or seven, um, he took me out and it was, I just remember like it was just a big production and it was this huge thing that happened. It wasn't like we just simply strolled down to some little thing. We, he had plans and we had, all sorts of stuff. He was up at four in the morning making sandwiches and hot chocolate. You know, we went to shop for all my clothes and we had a path made ahead of time of how we were going to get to our little pothole. And it was like a half mile walk into this public spot in Minnesota. You know, for me, a half mile was, I mean, it seemed like, it seemed like we walked forever. Yeah. And it was, it was never ending. And I just remember like how cool all that was. And, and we got there. And one thing we and Bill talked about before we started, this was, how back at that point in time, Minnesota's duck opener didn't start until noon on the Saturday of the first day of the season. So right. did you guys deal with that in Iowa too? Did you have weird? No, no, times? we didn't. Wisconsin was still that way. Uh, I went to college up in Wisconsin and yeah, had to deal with that for duck opener, but which is, no, it that's was, always been interesting to me. It's such a weird deal. And it was, I think it was just some really weird, biological reasons they had that it was protecting hens and all this but i mean <laughs> yeah. anyone yeah any, do, you, do you know the reason why noon was i was always told safety which didn't make sense to me uh yeah i don't know so i i can't imagine there's a legitimate biological basis so yeah. maybe the reason why it survived for so long because it's changed now i mean uh, yeah. Now it's a uh, half hour before sunrise, but they even dabbled with nine. O'clock. This is in Minnesota speaking, but they dabble with nine o'clock for a couple seasons mm-hmm. too. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm sitting here trying to think real hard about it. And I can't think of a legitimate reason as to why that was, except for it just got penciled in as tradition. I know for a while yeah. there. Yeah. 
yeah, I think that's right. probably a lot of what it was. Which so, you'll find in all hunting, but waterfalling in particular is tradition. Yeah, important. Tradition. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So, like, so these, you know, we'd hike out at, we'd be at these spots at like five in the morning. And with our headlights on and our rubber knee boot, rubber hip boots that I could, because I couldn't get waders because I was too small. <laughs> and we'd walk and walk and walk. And I remember we'd get there and then we'd sit there from dark. And then about nine o'clock, we'd break out of lunch. And that was just cool. Yeah. And there'd be ducks buzzing all over the place because there's people walking in the marshes all over and they're kicking oh, ducks yeah. out. And so you're seeing ducks, and you, you know, your first time, you don't really know what's going on, but you see all the stuff happening. And there was a few of us, there was two other friends of mine that were, I mean, they were probably 11, 12 years old and they had done it before. And my dad brought them with. And so you just see all these things happening and all these little parts of the process really start to click. And I think that's what really got me in is it was how it was brought into me. It wasn't, it wasn't casual. It was just really like intense process <laughs> and it was just cool. And I, and the, from the minute, from that first day, I mean, I don't, like, that's all I thought about the rest of that fall. I went to school talking to my buddies about it and that next summer and then next winter. I mean, that's all I could think about was duck hunting from the time I was like seven years old. I remember I have a picture of me holding up my one hand wood duck that I probably didn't even shoot. You know, I'm sure. My buddy Matt Stallo probably shot it, but I claimed it because I just thought that I hit it because, of course, it fell. And, and it <laughs> yep. was in the same flock that I shot at a dog. Right. So who <laughs> yeah. knows, you know? So, but they weren't going to argue with it and they let me have it and it was cool. And, and then ever since from that time on, man, I've just, that's, that's the number one thing that kind of drives whatever I do is just duckiness type related things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's neat. That's awesome. Yeah, it really is. You, the one thing I always think about too, like especially when you're younger, which it still exists today, but when you were younger, it was a Christmas-like feeling. Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, whatever, oh, yeah. however your family celebrated. But duck opener mm-hmm. as a child, uh, for me anyway, I was more excited about that than I was the night before Christmas. Oh, yeah. No Definitely. question. Like didn't sleep. Yeah. And when I was little, I didn't have sleeping problems, you know, and didn't oh, yeah. sleep on the night before duck opener. And you waited, waited. You had your, all your clothes lined out, ready to go, which granted I still do now, but that's just more for convenience. Yeah, <laughs> but right. before it was like the first day of school, like you had like what I'm going to wear. And these are my three pairs of socks I'm going to wear. You actually spent time laying oh, yeah. it out. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I had yeah. it laid out on the, on the bed. I'll be honest. I like there are openers. There are some mornings that if I'm on a trip, I still will not sleep a wink just because I'm like so jacked up to go and just so ready and thinking about everything I need to do and everything that could go wrong that I'm still that way. Ah, man. Like it's funny. It's funny you say that about the things that could go wrong because like not to like disparage my buddies that I hunt with, but I tend to be like the guy that's putting the hunt together because it's my boat and I'm the one, some, there's other buddies who scout there's for sure that, but I'm always like kind of the one who has the gear and is kind of like pushing things. So I'm always like, nervous in the back of my mind oh man we got to make this good what if somebody beats the spot we need to get up we should get up even earlier than we decided now. we should get up at four not four thirty. we should yep. be out there now we need to, what if the wind changes oh man is it gonna be cloudy i hope it's not cloudy there's all those little things that like half you know you can't control most of them and oh, yet no. you're still like i it's i'm laying in bed at 11 o'clock at night this stuff is rolling through my head going oh boy I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to freak out. I know it's going to be good, but man, maybe it's not. Who knows? Unless you're on your third or fourth day of hunting in a row, then maybe not so much. But yeah, then you have a little more. Yeah, then 
then I'm exhausted. Yeah, he's the exhaustion. <laughs> Fall asleep yeah. standing up. Yeah, like a hunting trip. Like you come home from a hunting trip and you're more tired than you are before you leave. I was laughing. I, I don't think I've ever, like, I, we take, I take very few non-hunting related vacations. I finally have here in the last year or two. But like every vacation I took before I come home and I was exhausted and I had more work to do before when I got back than I did before I came home or before I left. So yeah, <laughs> I've always kind of dug, dug that power of it. Like just that anticipation of everything that, that comes into it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so like you guys hunted the Mississippi, did you actually hunt the Mississippi or were you off on like offshoots of it? Or were you kind of, like yeah, offshoots. Holes? we, we hunted the actual Mississippi a little bit, uh, more so in high school. So I had, my dad had a mud boat, uh, while I was growing up and let me use it kind of whenever. So every Christmas break and every, every chance I got, I mean, one of my really good buddies was a pretty dedicated hunter. So we'd be out somewhere usually, usually on the main river, uh, kind of close to town. There were quite a few, mostly park mallards, but <laughs> mallards nonetheless. Hey, they're, uh, and they're flying the river. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're fair game. Yeah. Um, yeah but yeah, lots of backwater as well. Like I said, lots of wood ducks. And then there's another marsh, uh, Conesville, kind of along the Cedar River. And it's a really nice uh, emergent and moist soil marsh. One of the best that's still intact in that part of the state. Uh, did a lot of hunting out there. Got to shoot, cut my cut my teeth on blue wings and green wings. We, we <laughs> shot a lot of teal in Iowa. Oh, yeah. Well... <clears throat> So you guys are, you were squarely in the middle of the Mississippi. So you probably didn't see a lot of like, I bet back then you probably rarely saw like a widgeon or a gadwall. Right. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very seldom on the Mississippi. Uh, I remember, I remember shooting a spoonie and a gadwall on just an awful ice storm day. We actually, we had to use three trucks to, finally get the boat out couldn't couldn't even back down the ramp it was like an inch of ice uh, yeah we shot a we shot a gadwall and a spoonie and honestly it, it was one of the most memorable and best days of my life just i love the i love the challenges i love working for it uh i mean the shooting and having the birds come together is nice too but yeah i love those memorable kind of when fit hits the shan type hunts yeah mm -hmm. That's one of the things that, like, like I can really, I've always, oh, so basically one of the, one of the thoughts, so I, I had a blog that I started and I haven't been good with it for the last month, but <laughs> one of the things I keep meaning to, to write about is how hunting is really kind of what you make it. Like people, mm. and the reason I even thought of it in the first place was because tricky hunting is I hear a lot of people talk about how turkey hunting is so easy and they're dumb and this and that. Like, yeah, you know, it can be. And I've had those scenarios where that's the case, but I've also had cases where this spring we hunted the Missouri breaks and we shot the only four turkeys that we basically saw over oh, wow. like a five day hunt. Yeah. And I've had that in Northern South Dakota where we're hunting huge, huge country. And the turkeys have a million places to go. And I choose to hunt those places because it makes the hunt kind of more memorable. It's more of an adventure. It's just a different thing when sitting in a guy's farmyard shooting a turkey that flies down from the roost and immediately runs right in. Yeah. And yeah. duck hunting is the same thing. And that's, I mean, people who, who've followed me on Instagram or Facebook will, will know that I'm pretty much a water hunter only for ducks. 
Um, I, I haven't shot a duck out of a dry field in quite a few years. And it's not because I think it's wrong or anything like that, but just I've chosen to make the water my place to do it because it tends to always be more of an adventure. You're launching a boat, you're driving out in the dark, you're putting decoys out, you got waders on. Weather is more critical. You can't just get back to your truck right away. So all that kind of stuff is why I like it. Yeah. And like just all those little aspects of that type of stuff just is what really can make a hunt cool. And the same thing goes if you're hunting the field and it's super cold and you're laying in a layout blind and you're freezing and you're shivering. Like you don't tend to remember the days when it's 55 degrees out and you shot your mallards in an hour and a half. But if it was 20 degrees and it's snowing and you had flocks of 300 coming in through snowflakes, you're going to remember that way more than those other hunts. And I think a lot of it's just this, the, the background, but also just kind of the fact that you actually got out and went and that stuff when a lot of other people don't, and they don't want to put that extra little bit of extra work in to make it happen. There's a lot of people who sit it, who would get to the boat ramp on a day, like you were just talking about with an inch of ice on the ramp and be like, eh, I don't think we're going to go. Let's just run to the restaurant and the cafe instead. And we'll go tomorrow. But they missed all that coolness of, even though you maybe only shot a spoonbill and a gadwall, <laughs> but you know, you wouldn't have shot it otherwise. And I was thinking to myself the other day as I was, I was working out and I was standing on the, on the stupid treadmill, which I hate of, of like, are there any days that I've ever regretted going hunting? Like I was ever happy that I didn't go. Yeah. That's a good question. Like there's yeah. no, there's not. And there's, there's a lot of days that I wish I would have went when I probably could have mm. not a lot. Yeah. I mean, I tried to go most, but I don't think there's any days, even though they were like, you know, miserable. Like we had to slop through how far of distance or <laughs> I, I broke a prop and got my truck stuck and didn't shoot a duck. I mean, I'm still glad I went. I had, I had one of those days last year. I broke a prop and a lower unit on my boat, got my truck stuck and we never shot a duck. And I'm still, I still wasn't like, well, we should have stayed home. I mean, I'm still glad we tried. I would, yeah. I would, I would do it again, other than the financial costs of having to replace all the stuff on my boat. But other than that, I would still do it again. Cause you never know. It could have been awesome. That's the beauty to hunting too. Uh, every single day you go, even if it is poor, you gain something out of every hunt, whether it be knowledge for sure. You're always going to gain some form of knowledge from every single hunt. There's no such thing as not learning something from a hunt. But you gain knowledge and experience and how to go about it the next time better. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, like, yeah. and it's just one of those things like you just always like you stick it in the memory banks, too. And like you're never going to be you're never going to be 85 years old on your deathbed. Like, oh, man, I'm glad I didn't go those days because <laughs> I sure would have hated that. You never know. Yeah. Right. right. Oh, cool. So what was what was your intro to duck hunting, Bill? Uh, again, it's the same as you guys. So it makes me wonder too, cause I haven't asked this question a lot, but I would think most waterfall hunters or hunters in general got the introduction from their dad or moms or dads. Um, but mine was definitely from my dad. I grew up with an older brother too. Um, so that was also part of it. But like I said earlier, I grew up in Southern Minnesota. Uh, we have no shortage of lakes, that's for sure. And in my backyard, I had a lake called Goose Lake. Oh yeah. Which, as a kid, um, it's the lake that when you drive <laughs> by it on the highway, you're gonna if you were came through the area and didn't know it, you would be like, 
oh my god this is the ultimate duck marsh right here yeah <laughs> yeah it's a beautiful uh duck marsh that's the results sure. were usually not as good the results were really looked- poor yeah and it was a dangerous lake it's a lake that and maybe oh, really? m- well maybe we can talk more about this later but it was a dangerous lake that you do not get out of your boat but the depth was only it probably got up to four or five feet deep but it was a dangerous lake as far as it had no bottom oh yeah and i don't know maybe you could answer this if that's only in southern minnesota that that exists no okay yeah i didn't think so wisconsin wisconsin's the same i've even been some spots in arkansas there like that okay it tends to be those places that have uh water that is more stable i think like we don't have we rarely have that here in south dakota okay because our water our water levels fluctuate so much that a place could have four feet of water in it one year and be bone dry two years later Mm -hmm. so that stuff doesn't accumulate in the bottom i think is a lot of what it is okay yeah but anyway it was was a lake like that uh but it was was right in our backyard and um my memories i was thinking about this earlier was it definitely had to be we would make our own dock basically so it had a lot of cattails that went around this lake probably a bed of how thick is the cattails from dry ground to the edge of the water well the water's right away but to the open water be 100 yards cattails going all, all around this lake and and we would go right out from our backyard and my dad and my brother would always work on laying pallets down like a dock and uh as soon as we got to more of the open water where you could have a boat in it we'd drag the duck boats out there and we'd have them sitting out there so it was cool about me my first introduction to duck hunting was i did get to wake up of course even though opener wasn't until noon uh, we would get up at you know three thirty four in the morning and uh head on out our homemade dock made out of pallets and get in the duck boats and and paddle out there um and uh sit and wait bologna sandwiches root beer hot chocolate that was definitely like some of my first memories and then i always had a bb gun along so i don't know what my age was but seven eight you know dad started bringing me out in the duck boat and shoot decoys with the BB gun, or I can even remember when a flock would come in and he'd stand up and shoot, I'd stand and shoot with him. And and if he knocked <laughs> one down or even two down, especially if he knocked two down, he would say, I, I got I got one of them, you know. And I <laughs> back then I was convinced that I did get that duck. We do pictures in the whole bit with it too. Yeah. But my dad, for sure, a hundred percent. You know, brother, of course, hunted with him, my brother's friends. I was a little kid trying to tag along with my brother and his friends. I know they would try to beat me out to the boat so they could get out without me going along. <laughs> um, but, you know, just like you guys was hooked right away, hooked by water, birds. I always had a thing about birds, even um, when I was little like that. My grandma and I would have the bird book out and try to identify birds. And, and uh, of course, then calls, you know, you were little. Yeah. Calls were yeah. a big deal. Noise makers. At that oh, point time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my dad had that when he when he'd pull that lanyard out of his bag with a folks and a big river on oh, it. Oh yeah. And he even had the I'm pretty sure it was an ult. I don't know the the model, but I oh, call okay. it a, I call it a kerhonk. Oh yeah. <laughs> so he had <laughs> the resonant cavity. Yeah. Goose so, call. For those who don't know, there are more than flutes and short reads. There's also resident cavity. Resident, cav- yeah, that's resident what it, cavity goose calls. <laughs> well, when he pulled that out, I remember that too. That was a big moment. Like, oh, it's okay. Here we we're about to start. It's getting close to noon. 
and uh, he'd start blowing on the folks. And 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 like you, it was teal primarily. I mean, it'd be early. I'm trying to think yep. back then when our season opened, like, like real early October. October. Yeah. And and as long as we didn't get any frost, we were covered up with blue wings like crazy. And that lake was good for that. It's 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 probably still good on opener today, but I th- you know there was a lot of hunting pressure. And that was an interesting introduction into waterfalling as well was the competition aspect, which I liked a lot more as a kid too, actually. Um, But being out there with other hunters, getting to the spot, that's where you learned and was instilled on you to get up that extra half hour early. And, but I definitely got started from my dad. That's, that's where it began. That's where the obsession or the sickness, some people even say began. And that was on in my backyard on, on goose Lake in Southern Minnesota. Neat. Neat. Very cool. So, you know, all this hunting stuff is obviously kind of like where I myself got started in the photography thing. Um, and it started, geez, when I was, I think I was like 12 or 13 years old. We bought, my dad bought a, I still have it sitting in the cabinet right next to me, actually. A Canon AE-1. It was one of the first cameras to have auto exposure on it in a film it was maybe the first i don't know (laughs) yeah yeah this is like ancient and uh this thing was the first probably one of the first cameras least consumer available to have auto exposure still manual focus just a little film lens i had like the the stock the factory whatever you call it um kit lens i guess it'd be like a 35 to 70 or something like that lens and I had the sucker and I was bound and determined to go out and get photos of ducks with that when I was 13 years old. And if you can imagine, if you've ever tried taking photos with a 35 millimeter lens, it's not good. <laughs> and uh, so I was super disappointed with what I got. I kind of quit. And then uh, obviously as digital cameras became available later on, I picked one up and slowly worked my way into it and one day just kind of made the decision that I'm just going to be somewhat serious about it and kind of went from there so as Ryan like I mean your photography has been a pretty big thing for you the last few years and how long have you been doing it and kind of what got you into taking it more serious yeah so I uh, I was similar I started pretty shortly after started hunting we had a marsh that i'd get to go see all these ducks that i didn't see all season uh and at first i started taking i think it was either two or three megapixel sony cyber shot just a little point and shoot uh, but i remember sitting on the side of a levee in this public marsh with just thousands of ducks mostly divers out in front of me i still remember having a flock of seven or eight ringnecks swim up to me uh, and I took a picture and the flash had come on still super dark, like not even <laughs> couldn't shoot in that kind of light now. Uh, and the flash came on and it like attracted them even more. So they got even closer. And that's, that's really what hooked me into photography was just being out in that marsh with all these red breasted mergansers, redheads, canvasbacks and bufflehead and just stuff that we didn't see during regular duck season. Uh, and I was pretty lucky. My sister was a photojournalism major. Uh, so I was able to kind of inherit one of her Nikon DSLRs. Uh, Life changing. Fairly early on. Much. 
what's that life-changing event pretty pretty much at that yep, point yep definitely and that's <clears throat> it's it's really the same reason why i hunt i just love to be in the marsh uh i'm always in awe of watching birds watching their behaviors listening to them uh and yeah it was just kind of a really a better chance to do that even than hunting i think that's one of the that's one of the coolest things that i've gotten out of it um and people who've ever read any of my posts have seen that or i talk about how you just experience so many <clears throat> so many different things in the spring or anytime when you're not actually shooting at ducks as soon as you sit down with a gun, like no one lets ducks land and swim around for 15 minutes, mm-hmm. right. watch more and more and more. You shoot them when they come in right before they land, but when we shoot, they're gone. And then you don't see in that other stuff that they do. Whereas when you're sitting there trying to hide and you are having all these birds around, it's just, it, you kind of take a little bit different look at how they are. Like you almost notice behaviors on an individual level, not just, a duck level, but like this specific duck does this and, and sounds that you would never hear and, and just little things that you don't ever see. So I think that's one of the coolest like byproducts of it. And that wasn't necessarily why I started it, but it's one of the things I've noticed about it. So I've always just really kind of appreciated that fact of that, that aspect of it. Yeah. What, um, yeah, cool. so you started with Nikon and you still, you're still shooting Nikon, right? I am. Yep. What do you have now? Uh, right now I'm shooting a D 500. I've got a D eight ten two full frame, uh, that I try to use for other stuff, but D 500 is just a, a workhorse wildlife body. Uh, and then I've got a big, big 600 millimeter Nikon, one of the older ones, but oh, you do have a 600. Okay. Yeah, I do. I do. I've, I've had it. Oh gosh. I think I got in 2013 maybe. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I've I've had it for a while and I've thought about upgrading, but still, <laughs> yeah, still so struggling to uh, your kidneys, your truck. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, still trying to rationalize finance your house <laughs> expenditure. <laughs> yeah, that six hundred Nikon is like isn't it like thirteen or fourteen thousand? Yeah, I don't yeah, really know. They're it's, insane it's now. A lot. Yeah, <sighs> I'm sitting here with a lonely four hundred millimeter and trying to make that work. Hey, that's that's an awesome lens. It is. I like especially it. for me. I had a yeah. I had a two hundred to four hundred, and I there are a lot of days that I wish I'd never sold it. I uh, just the portability is the reason I stick with that. I, I can get into places that I maybe wouldn't otherwise, and and just I can handhold too, which I I know a lot of guys that do this probably maybe more professionally than me. Well, would knock it, but I like the results, and I love just the opportunities to have some different angles and get different shots that maybe I want to got on a tripod. So, yeah, but yeah. And that's, I think a lot of non photographers, people that just hunt don't realize how much photography is just like hunting. I mean, it's talking weird. about hard holding. Yeah, way harder. exactly. Way harder. Shooting, yeah, why is it hot, in what ways, in what way is it harder? As me so, being, uh, I appreciate waterfall photography, right? I love it. It's cool. I don't do it at all. So there's a couple, uh, my, the first thing I would say, cause I'm going to speak for, I'm, I'm thinking a lot of people that'd be listening. You have no hunting pressure. Yeah. That's you're that's out there in the say. spring. There's ducks everywhere. There's yeah, ducks that everywhere. That's now. And I'm not trying to argue. I'm playing devil's advocate. Cause I have been out there in the spring yeah. a little bit before, but I've gotten that. I've heard that 
that it's it's got to be easier and there's so many ducks and boy if i could hunt in the spring this would be awesome yep that's actually the first thing i was going to note was that a little bit of a disclaimer that of course there's nobody shooting at them so there's, and there's more birds um but their behavior is different too in the spring versus the fall they they aren't especially mallards pintails and those kind of ducks aren't from what i've gathered they're not as as social i mean they're they're interested in chasing hens and yep. they're not as flock oriented like you're not gonna you're gonna not decoy a flock of mallards or a flock of pintails from march 1st through october or whatever right. whenever there's a point in time there where obviously it changes but the springtime you're not gonna decoy a flock of mallards or pintails um divers are the exception they do still really <laughs> really really <Yep. laughs> um locate they, they can't they, they stay hone, in their groups they hone in on flocks for sure but I, yeah. I, st- I still think it's based probably more on reproduction drive than like a like a grouping drive yeah but the difference for me and i'm sure ryan has seen this is um the the the, the closeness the proximity that you have to be to a duck to get these photos. I mean, uh, on my stuff, like most photos that anyone sees, unless it's obviously a far photo, like a big flock of courtship mallards or pintails or something like that. Um, those birds are probably within 30 yards. And then I still crop from that point a little bit to get the photo looking how I want and to get that duck down. Like if you just take a duck of a photo and if it's at 30 yards out and say 20 yards up, like the photo is not worthless, but it, there's, it's just a duck in a blue sky. So yeah. you need it to really get down on that horizon and to get them down there. Like you'd be shocked at how seldom when you're hunting, I think that actually happens. Mm-hmm. This place sort of happens, but like to get them down in that close and to, to be hidden well enough is tough, but then you have to be hidden well enough and yet have your camera lens not covered up in junk cattails or fragments or whatever it might be so that you can shoot but yet you're hidden and they need to have the lighting right and ryan can talk i'm sure there's some other things that you know but yeah and then even after even if you do all that right getting the focus right and getting that that af point on (laughs) that fast moving of a dock is just oh yeah you have a duck coming at you at 30 to 50 miles an hour at under 50 yards that like the the relationship to you from the duck to that camera is changing so rapidly that the camera is working so fast. You're pushing. I mean, people like cameras are tested on guys like say a Canon one DX two. like someone goes out and tests it as a sports camera and they test it on some dude running the 100 meter dash. And it was he running like 18 miles an hour, maybe. And it's, yeah. and it's this huge guy <laughs> running at line. you. Yeah, in a straight line, yeah, running at you with a clear background. Well, yeah, any almost any camera can do that. And they're happy when these cameras can keep focus on 80 to 90% of those shots. Well, now you take a three-pound duck and you stick some cattails behind it and you stick uh, some clouds behind it and it's bobbing and weaving and you're trying to keep it in focus. And that's yeah, that's a whole other, like the physical, like the actual like technical aspect of it. There's just a ton of it is different, but it's something about it. That's just, it, it still kind of has like, it's all to me, it gives that same benefit. Like after you shoot a flock of mallards with your gun and you're done, you're, it's like, okay, that was awesome. And you're 
hooting and hollering or whatever. Yeah. You kind of have that like fulfillment factor. I get the same thing after every time that I know a flock of ducks comes in or a single comes in and I wrap off 20 shots at it and I know it's in focus. I can have that like 20 to 50 times a day or a hundred times a day, depending on how good it is. Yep. So it's like never end, not never ending, but it's way more times. And it's still that same, same general thing. I think I'm sure I assume you get that too. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I get, I get, it's very much a, even adrenaline rush. Uh, like just that, that really good feeling whenever you know you nailed it. Oh yeah. Like I get as excited if I see like a flock of canvasbacks cruising by at 75 yards and I'm like, Oh, please turn, please turn, please turn, please turn, please turn. <laughs> you know, you don't really have much that you can do to get them to turn. You're, you're not going to call at them, but you're kind of still have that like anxiety. Like, God, just get over, get over, please, please. You're at the right angle. The sun's out. Everything's perfect. Just do it. And then they go by. Like, oh man. So do you call? Do you ever call? Do you bring your calls at all? I don't. Ryan? I, I've tried, but not, I I haven't stuck with it. <laughs> I've tried. You've tried because you saw no success to it. No turning, nothing right. like that. No. Yeah. Mall- mallards and pintails. Shouldn't, there's a little, there's a little bit of them that will, there are some, some tricks that you can kind of do. Um, some of the divers will respond, especially to like some of the breeding sounds, but like, yeah, you can't really like recreate them with. A How are you on your well. breeding diver calls, Phil? <laughs> uh, not as well. I haven't my, heard that yet. I haven't heard that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a mallard called on a little bit better. So what about with geese for you guys in the spring? Did well, you know, so my take on this is this is a, this kind of goes back. Actually, I think, Bill, you were involved in this a long time ago, probably like 15 years ago. Does this have to do with when we first learned what short reads were? Nope. Okay. This has to deal. Well, no, this has to deal with a, it may have been another friend of ours, Mike Bartel, but I think, Bill was in on it. Um, there's a, a Tim Fisher had a field east of Wasika, west of Wasika. I'm sorry, man. We went out there in like late February or March. Yeah, I remember it, now. I was with. I know what you're talking about. Muddy, super muddy. <laughs> in a, February. I remember yep, it was February, and it was a black because you wanted photos. That yep. was er, that was you could call it in your pioneer yep. days of yeah. photography, <laughs> like pre pioneer. Like this was before I had a, a clue what I was doing. Yeah, but I just wanted that. to attempt this, and so we went out. Into this plowed field, black dirt field, took our final mm. approach eliminators out. <laughs> Jeez, I wonder why this didn't work. Yeah, there was many reasons this didn't work. But, and we had, there's probably a few hundred geese in the field, and we thought it was going to be awesome. We thought it was going to, I do remember that. We thought it was going to be lights out. Oh, yeah. Like, because no one was hunting. Man, I thought I was coming home with like the Ducks Unlimited cover yep. that day. Yep. I thought it was going to yep. be awesome. I remember that. And we went out, and we, for one, I mean, we didn't blend in well, but we couldn't turn a goose. To save our lives. And there Calls was like three, did nothing. There was like three or four of us, and we were all like pretty mm-hmm. decent goose callers. Oh, we yeah. could not turn a goose to save our lives. Like, didn't really? even get them to like go your direction a little bit or yeah, anything. Nothing. Huh. We didn't exist. We might as well. Wow. Yeah, it was it was terrible. So ever since then, and I and I did try like the first few years that I kind of really got back in to doing this, the photography side more serious. As we tried it, I tried it by myself, and just it was worthless i mean they just they do not they do not respond is my my take on it mm-hmm. yeah they'll come into a decoy but 
a little bit. We'll kind of locate somewhat to a decoy, but for the most part, no. Ryan, yeah. do you have anything to say about that on your end with your education and that? Why by February, let's say, in Wasika, you know, we had anywhere. nothing happen. Anywhere. I'm assuming it's anywhere. Yeah. 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 I, I think Phil's got it spot on. I think it has more to do with kind of the annual cycle. Their hormones are starting to pump. They're thinking about nesting and uh, really the males are focused on the females and the females are focused on getting the resources that they need. Uh, so, yeah, they don't really care for any social interaction or conflict. So they are generally more than happy to just be on their own. You know, I have a little bit of this. I know. So our duck season up here typically ends in the areas that I hunt typically ends around Christmas. Mm. Um, we are open a little bit later, but I've hunted in several southern states, states south of us where the season stays open till the end of January. And it just seems as the later and later you get into January, the less and less responsive that they get to a duck call. Like right. the, the prime time. I mean, like both me and Bill, like we didn't even mention it, but that like duck calling, we both used to do contests and all that totally. baloney. And but like duck calling or goose calling are like two of the driving factors that always like kept us super interested in hunting. Yeah. And so I'm always very aware of how ducks react to calls. And it seems like at mid November, late November, maybe even early November, all the month of November, let's say through mid to late December is like the prime time for blowing a duck call when you're just going to see that snap out of a duck where yeah. you, you hit an aggressive hen and you're going to see their backs just snap to you just like that. Yeah. And we've hunted Arkansas a few years. I haven't been down for like a year or two now, um, but it's like that later you get, we always went the last week of the season and it just seemed like you were getting ducks in more so because of the spot or like just all of a sudden, like some started to trickle in your spot and then the rest came in versus like, we didn't see that snap that we would see like up at home on November 15th. And so I think that's part up at of home. What are you saying here? South, South, Dakota. South Dakota. Yeah, yeah. anywhere, anywhere. In, like, I mean, if you were at Stuttgart on November 24th or whatever they open, I'm sure it's awesome. Like you would see that and it'd be like the best of both worlds because you're in the woods and you have ducks that are super responsive. Whereas that late time of the year, and someone can probably leave a comment on my uh, Instagram page here about this if they think differently, but it just seems like later in that January, they're already taking to that kind of like mindset that they're in the breeding stage more yep. more so than they are just being ducks which i would like duck 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 hunted ducks in yeah. october november december yeah right and that's i mean a lot of the reason why they're in those woods too and i'm sure we'll get into some of this later is but yeah that kind of visual cover just having those trees and shrubs and stuff in there uh it's really good for pair bonds where it's just that male and female together in there oh, makes sense are yeah. looking displaying and front of a bunch of other other pairs that makes sense it's, yeah. too bad, it's too bad there wasn't more of that in the country yeah <laughs> right yeah <laughs> rather than have for me have to drive 13 hours <laughs> just to go there and have a who knows what kind of hunt but that's half the fun though so yeah um yeah. so like so the one so i, I mentioned earlier that I, I think our like our instagram pages are similar yet 
I think they're different in that our photos are a little bit different. So I was kind of just curious on like what your process is like, because it just looks scrolling through your photos, man. It looks like, I mean, you've kind of been all over the place taking photos and I assume it's probably as part of like a, like projects and whatnot. Um, but it's kind of more like where you've been, how you set up for them. Um, and it's kind of what you do in general. Yeah. Right. So right. Uh, kind of around the same time I was getting serious about photography. I was in high school, uh, had been taking a bunch of business classes, was sure that's what I was going to go to college for. And for some reason, I just got this whim uh, to start looking for outdoor jobs, jobs in waterfowl and uh, applied. It was just a volunteer ship, but it was up in Nunavut, up in the Arctic, working oh. at a snow goose colony. That's that's where all the snow geese are banded. Yep. <laughs> yep. Ray Alasaskis, I'm sure if you mm-hmm. guys have shot a snow goose band, probably come from him, his permit. Can you can you explain a little bit exactly where this is? So yeah, it's in the Queen Maud Gulf uh I think it's bird sanctuary. So it's land that Canada set aside just mostly for waterfowl and nesting Arctic breeding birds. Uh, but it was about 40 miles south of the Bering, uh, not Bering, Arctic Ocean, Arctic Sea. Uh, so you're way up in Alaska. Oh, yeah. And yeah, this was we a volunteer were... thing you did? Uh, yep. Yep. Yeah. So it was, I mean, I got a stipend and they paid for flights. But yeah, it was my junior and senior year of high school. Uh, and really, it was my hunting experience. I'd done a lot of boating, done a lot of outdoor stuff. Uh, and that was the only reason I even got it. It was even fairly competitive, I guess, uh, as a volunteer position. I suppose it probably helps lead to other stuff down the road. Oh yeah. And that's, uh, unfortunately, especially for younger folks in wildlife, it's kind of a lot of it. There are tons of, uh, tons of people out there that just want to work with animals, uh, and haven't figured out how tough it really is yet so there are a lot of people willing to take jobs that don't pay very much or don't pay at all uh it's kind of like the outdoor uh photography world <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so yeah, what what fun. helped you get up there was you're, you're saying like so if anyone's younger and 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 listening was your experience in the outdoors yeah oh uh, yeah going out at night trekking along tying knots starting motors all that kind of stuff yep yep exactly and just yeah, that helped that you I get the, the that helped you get up there. Yep, yep. I'll say that boat motor knowledge has come in handy in my life several times. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, it's important. It really is important. Yeah, I I still need some more of it. I still I'm mechanically challenged. I I've done too. enough. I've broken enough stuff that I'm starting to be able to figure it out. But that's that's how you learn. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So you've kind of been all over the place then. Well, I want to talk about the snow goose thing. I guess this is new to me. So all snow geese are banded up there where you were? No, not all snow geese. Okay. Uh, but they banned, they've banded over, I think, 10,000 a summer uh, for at least the last 10 years, maybe 15, 20. Ever uh, since there's been a concern with the growing populations, right? Yeah. And even, even before there was before. snow goose research done up there. Uh, and it's just... It's one of the biggest snow goose colonies. It is the biggest Ross's goose colony uh, in the world. So, I mean, it's just 
tons of birds up there and that's kind of why we focused a lot of research and banding effort up there i think like almost all rasas are done there aren't they yeah yeah and they're and they're a really interesting species where they're kind of shifting their distribution as well so i think there are some like around la perouse bay and i don't quote me on this because i'm I'm a little fuzzy on some of those other areas, but they've expanded. But yeah, the the vast majority of them are are banded there. Yeah, you know, everyone I've ever heard, of, like I have, like I have a Ross band, and I know it was there. Um, everyone yeah. I've ever seen shot has been from there. So cool, it's kind of cool. Neat. Yeah, Very cool. yep. So yeah, after that, I uh, Ray also some of the other folks that worked up there really well known, do a lot of great work, and that kind of connected me with other people. I was able to get another position up in Alaska working with emperor geese the next summer and mm. uh, pretty much did that kind of stuff all through, all through college. So I know that uh, you have like some photos of emperor geese I assume that's when you got them. Yep. Yep. While I was working up there. Very cool. Yeah. With the USGS. So they aren't technically mine. Oh, really? So, really? Right, right. Right. You're just borrowing them. Federal, federal government. Yeah. Just can't sell. Yeah, lovely. I'm sure they're yeah. coming after you. Nah. The man the man <laughs> is coming after you. No, but lots of great folks up there. Just yeah, chances to see spectacled eider, emperor geese, all these other shorebirds that people elsewhere never see. Uh that spectacled eider is actually a photo I pointed out to Bill here before we started. I was just kinda we were scrolling through your Instagram feed. Oh yeah. Like like he's been to all these cool places to shoot photos that I mean, not very many people get to go to. Yeah. And that was one of them. Like, man, that's a cool, like I, you, I, I suspect they probably barely even make it down to the lower 48. No. Uh, oh yeah. Very rarely. Yeah. It'd be like a one in a million chance to probably even see one. Yeah. Yeah. They're really neat birds. Yeah. I've been, I've been really fortunate to, go to some cool places and see some really cool birds and photograph some really cool birds. Just thanks to kind of the career path I chose. So if you're like, what, so let's just say like, you're going to go out and do you do most, do you do a lot, I guess, do you do a lot of photography just close to your home now? Uh, you know, and this is, we can chat some more about this. I, I've struggled the last few years. So I did a fair bit when I was up in Wisconsin uh, because, of, well, quite frankly, I had a lot of time. And then I went and did my master's down in Arkansas, uh, the University of Arkansas, Monticello. And man, just being in grad school is really hectic. Down there, it's tough because, I mean, the birds show up right before season. They get hunted hard all season. And then everybody pulls water off of all oh, their yeah. fields and everywhere. So they're just, and I didn't, again, pursue it as hard as I probably should have. but other than driving around getting shots off gravel roads, yeah. it was, it was pretty tough. Yeah. I wish I, I wish I had spent some more time. I wish I had more photos from Arkansas. Uh, and now I'm up in Illinois, which you think would be way worse, but the Illinois river Valley is incredible in the spring. Uh, oh, I bet it's kind of like, especially probably a major snow goose path. Yeah. It's, it's getting to be that way. Uh, they're definitely a lot more coming through is, uh, yeah, I, I mean, working on my PhD now and, and I taught a waterfowl ecology class last spring. 
So a lot of time that I did spend over there was with a bunch of students, uh, walking them around wetlands. And I, I don't know, I, I don't like to do it halfway. Like when I get in the mood to do waterfowl photography, I go all out. I'm going every morning and, you know, going out into the marsh and really patterning them well. Yep. Uh, and yeah, just haven't done a very good job of that. Still snap some photos here and there during hunts or locally uh, right after season, especially January. But yeah, nowhere near as much as I, I should be doing. So like how what's like your actual process? So I, I'm just looking at like what you have. One thing I don't have a lot of is you have a lot of those like cool, like close up, like on the water type shots. How are yeah, you, well, that's, like, how are you, like, how are you hiding on that? Yeah. It's mostly just because I suck at getting them in focus while they're still <laughs> in the air. So I had, to, had to do something. Uh, yeah. So I set up with a, a really either a low tripod or a skimmer. Uh, I don't know if you've seen those ground pod. It's basically like a dish that you can put your tripod head on. Okay. Uh, and yeah, usually I've started panel blinds, uh, just like turkey hunting blinds yep. that you stake out, stake those out, you know, cut a hole for your lens in and then grass it up around the outside. Uh, I've tried like just putting a camel blanket over me. I've tried ghillie suits and I really think having that just solid kind of wall barrier between you and a bird that's on the water uh, makes a big difference. Oh, I would, once they're on the water, they are, they're so skittish. You would never yeah. expect it. So I, okay. So this is, you're actually the perfect guy to bring up two of my uh, theories here. Um, Okay. So you've, you have a lot of ducks on the water around you. Yep. For one, I know, I'll, I'll say, I know maybe what's, see what your take on it, that they hear the shutter of your camera going off when they're coming in. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Where you're like, you're waiting, waiting, waiting. And then all of a sudden they get to the, the spot and you start wrapping off photos in immediate flare. And the second one is let's say that they do not flare from that and they get down and they land and you're hidden and you have a solid wall that there's no way for them to see you. And they happen to get downwind of you. Do you ever notice anything? Here we go. <laughs> That's here we go. Oh, yeah. And yeah. do you ever notice anything different at that point in time? I, I pay really close attention to this because I've had this conversation with a few people or debate. Have you had this debate? Yeah. Maybe? It's just yeah. a conversation. Yeah. Like, it's a, it's a Phil and I have been going back and forth on this for years now <laughs> for people who know and have done it a lot. It's just a conversation for people who have never done it. It's a debate. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have had times where like the only thing I can think of is that a bird has winded me. Yep. Uh, and yeah, it's really, it's, it's fascinating to me. There's no, I, in my mind, there's no question that they smell you. There's no yeah. question. It's when it's gotta be the close. They have to be like under 15 to 20 yards. Yeah. The wind so what would you, around. what would you compare their smelling to? Like another, Wow, like, to us, no. to us, stronger than us, better than us, but nowhere near like a duck or a deer. Ryan, I mean, do you want to right. give a professional I, answer to the, this? Do you have one? They're really. And Phil's asked me some questions about like eyesight and stuff, and there's a lot that 
I mean, nobody knows. And there's a lot I don't know. So there could be something out there that I'm just not familiar with. But I don't think anybody has looked from a kind of empirical research standpoint I have, at the cap- I have like, smell capabilities of docs. I have like literally Googled this for like since the Internet was out. <laughs> so like this is kind of funny. Like my take on the thought of the, the ducks being able to use smell to somewhat detect danger starts again back when I was like, man, like 10 years old and on this lake that in town, town where I grew up, I'd ride my bike down to it and it was, there was a end of it that was really marshy and there was ducks always on it almost, almost all year. And yeah. I would sit and I would, I would crawl under like the flares grass to where it was, okay. it was so thick that there was no possible way they could see me. I mean, I literally had like a eye hole poking out of this grass and these ducks would come swimming down the shore and I'd be all excited. Here they come. And sure enough, every time they got to the right in front of me, they <laughs> bailed out about 20 yards and went, made a U around me and then came back and went back down the shore. And I mean, huh. I saw it. I don't know how many times I was a little 25, 30, 50, who knows a ton. And I, yeah. back then I didn't, and I thought about it. I remembered it. And then all of a sudden, once I started taking these photos and I had it happen more and more and more, I'm like, man, it's gotta be the case. So I always just like like to bring it up with people who spend Maybe. a lot a lot of time around ducks because like I people just recognize it if you pay attention to it and are aware of it. Yeah. Do you do you think it's possible that it could be any sort of noise or even your breathing? That they, I mean, think you know, about how, that they could have an, an enhanced sense of Yeah, think about how sensitive their hearing's gotta be if they can hear a duck quacking while yeah. they're flying it. That's fifty miles an hour. Yeah, you know, but I, it's, it's always on like a wind, like a windy day though, and like there's so much noise, you know, just yeah, like, like cattails and just water and the wind going over their head, and I don't know. I, yeah, let's talk about how to set up a little experiment, and I can, yeah, that'd put, be you, a, put you on the marsh next spring. And yeah, <laughs> there we go. I think it'd be fun. That would be a really good idea. I did one time find, and I don't. I wish I would have marked it. And who knows? It was probably like ten computers ago or something where someone had done like some like corn, like a, a, uh, like an experiment with corn and they had it in like a closed chamber where they couldn't see, but they could smell it. And they would always go to the one with the corn in it and not the one without, you know, they would like, they would relocate it to different ones and they would find it. So, I mean, they, they clearly can smell and that, right. And so it's just like how much they use it. And I think they use it somewhat. I mean, I, yeah, I've never had. Did you buy in those Max Prairie Wings catalogs? Did you ever buy the scent packs that you break open <laughs> oh, in your man. decoy spread? <laughs> no, I, you know, that actually, you know, you, you talk about that. It, I mean, so like our, like for uh, where we hunted growing up, geese could fly. What do they start flying? Probably mid August. I think it depends on the year, but yeah. I'd say typically yeah, mid August. So right around mid-August, conveniently, is when uh, sweet corn fields started coming out. And that's like early oh, season yeah. early season goose gold for anyone who doesn't have sweet corn fields. It's amazing. Um, and even for that matter, peas, too, peas. depending on peas when the peas out came early. out. Yeah, peas are out early. But sweet corn would be fresh that time. And these geese would live in town. And sure enough, these dang geese would all of a sudden, like, they would never fly, say, a certain direction. And a sweet corn field would come out, get picked two miles from town. And within like two days, they were on it. Yeah, I do agree. Their patterns would adjust pretty huh. quickly. 
Interesting. And that smell is pretty strong. I mean, that, that silage is left over and just that cut oh, corn, yeah. it's strong. Yeah. So I don't know. Right. That's well, a- here's I found one article and it's actually, it's from uh, Mike Eicholtz from Southern Illinois University. He's on my committee. <clears throat> Probably should have read this before, but experimental evidence that nesting ducks use mammalian urine to assess predator abundance. Huh. So it, it looks like they, wow. they kind of treated some test plots up in the prairies i don't see where yet uh but with with fox urine and it definitely had a signal that wow. the ducks were not nesting in as abundance as densely as the huh. untreated plots that's cool yeah, yeah so i, I need you to send me that link so i have a little some evidence of <laughs> you know, Phil and I, we, it was a number of years ago. We, we really would debate this to the point that, well, your opinion hasn't changed. It's remained the same. And you've even yeah. come up with more instances yeah. where your opinion is probably correct. And, and I was so stubborn to the point where I was absolutely not, you know, that they could smell. I just assumed, you know, it'd be like a turkey because a turkey won't, does not wind you. Correct. No, no. Right. You know? Yeah. And then I come from a non-photography standpoint, just a hunting standpoint and how do we set up with the wind at our back, at our back going right, right to them? So at the very least, I will say that they don't have a strong sense of smell. I think that's. Yeah, they're not going to. You're not going to like have to worry about putting <laughs> scent blocker jackets on to go duck hunt him. I'm, right. I'm not going to say that. But but as time has gone on, I do believe your your concept that they do have some form of sense of smell. And yeah, for sure. <laughs> that's so. funny. All right. So I'm just glad to have someone. Kind of re if you would have disagreed, I would have just cut this whole part out of the thing then. <laughs> you know, we should we should go back you could to just edited me out. Or, yeah, that you know. part would have all been gone. <laughs> we should go back to um your typical setup in photography, Phil. I'm curious to know about that. Yeah, me too. Oh. Okay. So here's one more thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't use decoys when I'm set up for like close up shots. Yeah, that's smart. Because decoys so, you get in sure you're in the photo. Yeah, it, I I'm I'm a little bit torn on it. When I started it, I really liked having the decoys in there to kind of give it that look. Yeah, but as I'm moving along, I find I wish I didn't have them there in as much. I love it on the flight shots. I like having them in there sometimes, especially to kind of just give that feeling of a hunting aspect. I mean, I I don't ever try to hide the fact that I, most of my duck photos come from the spring. But yeah, yeah, I do still like to give that appearance that it's hunting and that that's those are the shots that I like to see. Um, so I assume other people like that. And so that's kind of why I, I do it. And having decoys kind of gives you that ability because it locates them, you know, pinpoints them to you more so than not. Um, so like my typical man, if I was going to go out and start taking fo- duck photos, um, it involves a lot of driving. Probably, I probably spend yeah. more time driving and looking for the spot than I do actually taking photos. Um, just there's so many things you have to take into account. Like, you know, you have to kind of be looking ahead at weather and seeing what way the wind's going to be, hopefully southerly. Um, and then you're, you need a background that's decent for a spot. Why southerly? Um, good question. Um, just like in duck hunting, uh, some people don't like south, but. Myself, I love a south wind because it, especially for photography, it lights that duck up, puts the sun at your back so you're not shooting into it. Kind of a, right. a photography 101. I mean, there's instances where having shooting into the sun is cool, but 
typically wildlife photography is not that scenario because you're going to get no detail on your subject. Um, you don't get that like spotlight effect on a duck. So, um, so I spent a ton of time driving. I'm looking for cool marshes, cool setups, and then large quantities of ducks. Um, you know, in, in the spring here, I'm lucky enough to be picky that if a place doesn't have 500 ducks on it minimum, I'm probably not going to be there the next morning. Um, but, oh, you are lucky. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've gone in places where I've kicked five to 10,000 ducks out of a spot in, okay. in a morning, and it, it just goes from there, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's, that part is a super important part of it. Like the, all that pre kind of the pre-planning part of it. But then once I'm actually on a spot, you know, I'll, I'll drag my uh, sled out, take my canoe whatever. Um, I've got about, depending on, on where I am and what kind of ducks are around, I'll take about two to, uh, there's even days I have like four dozen decoys out this year, which is a lot for me in the spring. Usually it was about two to three dozen, but I had maybe four, maybe even more dozen out a couple of times. Um, and I almost always am just putting out only uh, diver decoys. I did try some mallard decoys again this spring, just for the heck of it. And eh, yeah. it was my, my idea was reconfirmed of them not working. So, basically diver decoys because the divers are going to come to them and you will occasionally get mallards just to come into them randomly or almost in, like a, a a confidence thing yeah they're just more there. than yeah they're just there's there and it gives them a spot to land um so i like to have I, I like to kind of match up my decoys to the ducks that are on there especially if it's divers because they do really locate to their species more i found um like a bluebill will come into ringbill decoys well i should say Let's put it the other way. A ringbill will come into bluebill decoys, but a ringbill will also have a higher likelihood of landing and coming in closer and landing with the ringbill decoys in your spread than if you only have bluebills. And the same goes for golden eye. Same goes for redheads. And that's in the spreads. fall too. Yeah, I would say you same. know with yeah, with hunt divers in the fall. I mean, it's it, you actually want the different species. I yeah. mean, even to the point where. I've seen it like the the G and H decoys I hunt with 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 divers and they'll go the canvas backs will go to the canvas back they'll see the red yeah because there's no difference or in the, the mold head, or the head shape oh yeah and the head shapes I guess yeah so there is a difference in the mold a little different head yeah. shape but they'll go to the canvas backs um, if I have them on that side of the spread yeah you know and the bluebills yeah it's teal, true teal are the same way and then like oh, yeah. in like a field spread it's the same I mean. Everybody says you can kill field mallards over just Bigfoots, and you can, and a spinner. But you do actually see a little bit better finishing with some mallards mixed in. Uh, same thing with, like, speckle belly decoys in a can of the spread. You will actually see yeah. them finish a little bit more rather than just come to you. They'll actually, like, put, kick their feet out. And, of course, I mean, there's always exceptions. They're, they're, ducks are ducks, and they're going to finish to duck decoys sometimes. But over if you were to really increase your chances of, of targeting a certain species, having those like particular decoys out does help. So, yeah. So anyway, so that's uh, kind of how I start. And I, you know, then I'm, I'm already have like, when I get out to a spot, I have a place planned out as to where I want to be um, like a point or a bay where they've been sitting or a place where I can like traffic them well, where there's a lot flying in between two spots. My favorite is to get between to like on a really big marsh to somehow get into a spot in between two big sections of a marsh 
So they're just flying back and forth between me. And I really don't maybe have to kick a lot out. Um, that just makes them go to another spot and they don't want to come back as readily. So I love to get into between two big mobs of them or even two separate marshes, but that are maybe like, you know, less than a mile apart and get on a little pothole and slap out a bunch of decoys. And then you just get that traffic in between. And it can be pretty steady because typically they're not going to stay. And once you start taking photos, they swim away and then they're gone. And at that mm -hmm. point, they're actually, I, I will kick them off of my spot actually after a little bit once they get out of ways because they're more of a detriment because it's a bunch of live decoys sitting out from you. Yeah. So I, I get them out of there. I'll, I'll stand up every 15, 20 minutes and just make those ones go away and let them sit back where they were before. Oh, okay. Um, rather than have them sit, you know, at 200 yards out and just bring in every other duck under the sun because <clears> – <throat> It sounds a lot like hunting situations. Oh, yeah. I like mean, anybody knows. Similar. Like, yeah. Like if, I mean, you could have 100 decoys out and mojos and spinners and whatever you want under the sun, flappers and water kickers yeah. and all that stuff, anything you want. And you could have that all out. And two, a pair of mallards can land out in the middle of the lake, and everybody knows where all the rest of the ducks are going to go. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, I kick those suckers out and get them out of there. Um, and then from there, I just bring a little like a little stool, like a little, like a, like a turkey height stool, set it down in the water and try to use natural cover or ghillie suit. And then sometimes I'll bring like a grass mat and, and, uh, take photos from there. Essentially like I'm hunting. Nice. So nothing really complicated. Just a lot of it's just, it's more work than I expected it to be. I thought I could just buy a big lens and a fancy camera and, sit on my truck on the side of the road and get cool <laughs> photos, but that did not yield the photos that I wanted. So I told nope. myself, you know what? I need to maybe feel goofy and sit out there with decoys. And man, like the first few times that I did it, I was just so self-conscious of people driving. I was by. just going to say, did it feel strange? Oh, almost? It, it felt really weird. Like, and yeah. I was, you know, I'm in rural South Dakota, so it's not like there's a lot of people driving by, but I would see someone drive by and they'd see my truck and then they'd stop. And I'd look, watch them through my lens and their binoculars come up and then looking at me. I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> now what? You know, it was like a spot I had permission for. It was public or whatever. But How is permission getting in the spring? <laughs> Easy. Uh, permission in the spring, I, I've only ever been turned down once. Oh, so, yeah. 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 There's your biggest advantage. Though. Yeah, believe it or not, it's super easy then. In the fall, it's a little different. World. Oh, yeah. Um, it's actually kind of funny. I wish I would have written down or remembered or videoed some of the reactions i get from when i go to people's houses when they when you tell them what you're doing you get usually a head cock right away and you're doing what <laughs> um yep i'm gonna take photos um yeah go ahead just don't get stuck i'm like don't worry i'm walking not driving so yeah it's kind of a fun i don't know it's it's cool i'm ready for it again hopefully this year i'll actually do a little more hunting photos i've got some plans on how i'm going to try to get Oh, more, more like actual photos of us shooting at ducks and ducks coming in the decoy spread and all that kind of stuff. So those are ones when I look back, I really, really dig those just kind of, you don't see a lot of them out there and yeah, it's kind of fun to kind of fun to get it from a different angle too. What uh, Are you willing to divulge some of those, those plans? You know, it's not much, it's nothing super fancy on my boat. My boat actually anyone who hasn't seen it way back somewhere in my Instagram, I have photos of it, but um, I have a big hard side blind and I've got, what I want to do is just stick a, a camera right on top of my blind and um, 
basically like put it on a trial, really low profile tripod and just use a remote. So, and set everything up, have all the settings ready to go. And when ducks start coming, I'm just going to hit, have a pre-programmed like sequence. So I take a shot, like three shots a second or something. And I'll hit start, drop my call and we'll set up and shoot and go from there. Yeah. The other thing cool. I was going to try to do is just get like a big, like a, like a big like conduit pole and weld uh, a camera, like the screw that goes into the bottom of your camera. Yep. Like whatever, like a quarter inch or whatever and weld that in and then stick my camera off to the side within range of my remote and then try to get kind of that angle too. So cool. Um, nice. I haven't done it yet. And who knows? I mean, once it's a lot different deal, once you actually get out in the slough and you're hunting and then you try to, to make it all work, it's a whole different world, but yeah. I hope to at least do it on some settings, like some scenarios where it works well. So cool. Cool. And my, my, my problem is, as much as I like to take photos, I'm, I'm a duck hunter at heart and to not have my gun in my hand when it's a flock of mallards and decoys, <laughs> I, I just can't do it. I'm I've, I've tried, I've tried, but the gun always wins out. So yeah. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm kind of the same way. Have you ever said take them while hunting in the spring <laughs> doing photography? <laughs> um, I have, I've probably thought it, yeah. but I've never done it. Yep. It's <laughs> just a whole different mindset. So so one of the the reasons I really wanted to have Ryan on um, is that you know, obviously he's kind of shares a lot of my um, my likes and probably uh, things that people who would hear about this podcast would like is uh, just waterfowl in general, but hunting and then also the photography side. Um, but he also just has obviously the fact that he's getting his doctorate in. Um, essentially not specific to waterfall biology, but pretty close. That's what he's, you're doing your doctorate on, right? Yep. And yep. so that's, I mean, I, there's always in my mind when I'm driving around looking at ducks and watching ducks, I've got all these just questions in my head or when I'm hunting or I'm taking photos, I always have things that I always want to know about ducks. And we've got a guy who likes to do all of it and is <laughs> involved in that part of it. And so I guess, I mean, there's, we have, I think, I know me and Bill have some things that we want to talk about. But mm-hmm. what, what are some things that like in your, either your direct studies, like things you've actually discovered or things that you've just read about being part of like that community where you're, you're seeing papers and, you know, you're reading articles that people put out that they did studies on. What are some like maybe cool things that people would maybe don't know about ducks that, or geese or, you know, just any part of their lives, their daily lives, their yearly lives, their life cycles, <clears throat> feeding habits travel that maybe you think are, are kind of cool that people. Yeah. Know. Right. So, and I'm doing my, my PhD, my dissertation is going to be on candy geese, uh, in the Mississippi flyway, specifically ones that are wintering in urban areas or at least near Chicago. Uh, and some of the cool things we've seen with those birds and there was Brett Dorak was the master student on this project before me. So I've got to give him credit for a lot of this. Uh, but these birds that you think of as being kind of city geese, hanging around winter, I've even watched them like eating grapes and croutons from people in city <laughs> parks uh, are actually a lot of the same ones people are shooting up in Wisconsin and Minnesota. So they're leaving the city nest there. A lot of them nest up in Wisconsin and a lot of the traditional historic nesting area, areas like Horicon and uh, Teresa Marsh. Uh, 
but then they're molt migrating all the way up to Hudson Bay. So flying 1200 miles, uh, just to go up to Hudson Bay for the summer, which is kind of crazy to think about a bird that big that has all these resources that we think does so well in urban areas. Like, why would they do that? And then how does that influence their kind of survival when they have to come back through during hunting season? Uh, so that's one of my big, big foci right now on what some of my dissertation is going to be kind of focused around. That's, that's like super, I know, I know to both me and Bill, that's probably one of the, the coolest, um, things like as soon as you start, said the word molt migration, when we were talking the other day that like just a light bulb went off my head because it's one of our favorite ways to hunt geese is when they are the return for their molt migration. But yeah, it's always a thing of kind of a mystery as yeah, to yeah, it has been for sure as to why they go, why they come back and how, and I'm, it's cool that you said they went to Hudson Bay because we're always like, well, how far are these birds coming from? So it's September 15th and we have a 10 mile North wind and it's 50, 50 degrees in the morning. And we're like jacked because it's going to be molt migration central in Minnesota yeah. and you're going to shoot them and it's going to be awesome. But we're always sitting there like constantly facing to the North and we're looking for these high geese moving and we're going, I wonder where these geese came from. What time of the morning did they start? Where did they, yeah. how, like, where did they go? Where, where was their original? Did they fly at night? Yeah. Do they fly at night? Do they fly yep. in the daytime? Like all these things. And I don't know how much you know off that offhand, but that is that whole little thing is kind of this little cool niche waterfowl hunting opportunity that not probably a lot of people have seen. Maybe you don't even know about unless you have some yeah. friends that have kind of done it or got you into it or taken you along, or maybe you happen to stumble upon a flock of geese migrating in mid September when it was not what you think of as a typical goose migration day. Yeah. Right. And that's, uh, well, to answer one of your questions, they will fly at night, uh, for sure. And I'm still getting into a lot of that. So we're using GPS transmitters, uh, that record a location every hour. So we'll be able to tell that, uh, but it seems like the majority of movements occurred during the day. That uh, sounds about right. Based yeah. on like our limited knowledge of it. I'm yeah. assuming in the morning, primarily starting Sorry. off, typically starting off in the morning, guessing. Yep. Yep. Kicking off in the morning. Uh, but sometimes it seems like they're going out to feed, uh, right around dusk, uh, really loading up on some of those mm. energy reserves and then making the jump uh, and then kind of falling out on a big body of water at some point that night, kind of hanging there for a little bit. Yep. How, actually, like, we've had some birds that uh, will actually swim for just hours out on Lake Michigan or Lake Superior huh. on their way up, which is just insane to me on the open lake. Really? Since since we're talking about the molt migration, I guess I want to start out, you know, for the people listening to back up. Why is it called the molt migration with these Canada right. geese? Right. So uh, a lot of even hunters don't realize that ducks and geese all drop their flight feathers uh, at once. It usually occurs around when uh, adults will hatch goslings. 
So both they and the goslings will be flightless. That's how we round them up to ban them in the summers. Uh, so these molt migrators, instead of molting kind of in the area that they would nest, uh, it's usually younger birds or birds that either failed nesting or just didn't breed for some reason will actually fly north to molt elsewhere. And why is that? Do you know? Uh, so we we don't completely know. There are some hypotheses. Uh, I mean, back before modern hunting, there really wasn't a consequence for flying around in September. <laughs> uh, now there is, obviously. Oh, yeah. So it could be that it's kind of an evolutionary artifact of where they had really good food resources up north around Hudson Bay. So these these grazing lawns, sedge meadows that were really high in nitrogen, they probably didn't used to have as much forage, like no fertilized lawns uh, in the Midwest, no ag fields to depredate, that kind of stuff. So they'd go up there for the higher energy foods. And then it's also... Uh, possibly just to kind of mitigate competition for birds that are actually having goslings. So there's less competition. So the, the species or the area flock is doing better overall because they're kind of lowering that density. That's kind of the one I've always heard, but actually the first part makes more sense in terms of like their biology and history. I would think they'd have to yeah. be a pretty proactively thinking individuals to worry about the betterment of the flock. Yeah, almost. right. Although I must well, say, if it's built in, I mean, over time. That makes yeah, sense, but there's, there's some theory that it's kind of like, I would give, I think it's, I'd give two lives for my brothers. So it's kind of the animal's focus is to pass along their genetic material. Yeah. Uh, and if you're related then even if you're suffering some consequences, you're maybe helping out relatives that share a lot of that same genetic makeup. Hmm. Uh, and this is all, I mean, this is all just kind of off the top of my head. There's not, not great oh, yeah, support. That, for that yet. There's never... also some weird. So when we reintroduced them, uh, and again, a lot of people don't know that giant can geese were almost extinct, huh. uh, not 80 years ago. <laughs> Man. And, 30 years Our, ago, they were barely around. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And even, yeah, exactly. And so we reintroduced them across the Midwest uh, from this population close to where you guys grew up. Rochester. Rochester. And uh, I guess uh, some from Alberta, but I think it was mostly Rochester to begin. Yeah. That sounds but right. But we think that. And they were found there, right? Like we thought, yeah. did, am I right? This is, here's a story being close to Rochester that is told. Is that the the greater Canada goose, or what exact subspecies is that? It's giant, giant, maxima. Giant. Okay. Yeah. All right. So was thought to be extinct, correct? Yeah. And, yeah. And then was found. Am I right? I could be wrong on this, but by a doctor or a biologist in Rochester. Oh, I don't know that part. What's the lake though? Silver Lake. Silver Lake. Yep. They, they, they yep. don't even, even yep. use it that much anymore, but <laughs> the town is just so built up. That there's always other spots for them to go to now. Oh, really? Hmm. But anyway, go ahead. Yes. So they, they, yeah, rediscovered that little population or group of around 200 birds. And that's where we've kind of reintroduced a lot of Canada geese in the U.S. from. It's just, it's crazy. I've told the story a bunch before just to other people, but. 
Um, man, when I was, when I started duck hunting, I remember I was probably 10, 11 years old and we were actually pheasant hunting one time and a flock of Canada's flew over us and my dad had a 12 gauge, you know, I had a little 20 gauge or whatever. This is, this was still in the lead days. And I remember this flock of like probably 20 geese flew over us and they were high. My dad shot and he, and he hit one and it sailed mm-hmm. and it sailed like hundreds of yards away from us. I mean, long, long, long ways just locked his wings and just went down and we marked it and we're like, Oh, excited. And I swear we spent an hour looking for oh. this goose because, yeah. because back then like you just didn't shoot geese. Like it was rare for someone yeah. to shoot. geese. This is only 30 years ago, maybe a little over. And I mean, we sat there and looked and looked and looked through these all of a sudden, you know, I was like probably a 60 pound 10 year old or whatever. And I moved back some grass and there it was. I'm like, Oh, freaked out you know as big as me and he my dad comes running over and rings its neck and i remember like there was pictures of me in my basement stretching the wings out and holding it up by the neck oh yeah just to document that we actually got a can of the goose back then yeah it was a big deal i know a guy back home this is when i was well before my time of hunting but not that much before found four canada geese flying and he got in his truck and he chased him and he quit chasing him because he got to the Iowa border and his license wasn't good anymore. But that's how <laughs> excited he was about seeing oh, a wow. Canada goose. This is not that long it's ago. It's not that long ago. Up. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's even hard for me to really fathom because I mean, I, I'm a younger guy and oh, yeah, by the time I didn't look during that time. Yeah. I heard a lot of stories. It was like they were up now they're like in South Dakota. They're basically a plague or considered a plague. I mean, yeah, like smash their nests and do all these other things. Have a heck. A couple of years ago, we had a dang season in March or April for them. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, yep. You had to like apply and get permits, and you could only be you had to stay within like so many feet of these designated spots. But yeah, okay. It's I mean just the the change, like the cultural, like and I guess like ideas around them have just changed so much in such a short time, but. Yeah. So anyways, we were talking about goose movements. Yeah. Well, and then I want to say, I have, I have a lot of questions, but I want to say this too, is it just like, as far as the molt migration is, is it just the, the greater Canada geese that do that? Or does this exist in other subspecies too? No. So yeah, it it exists in other subspecies. uh, And I don't know as much about the Western geese, but even like Brant and white fronts, uh, even nesting up on the tundra will make molt migrations. Oh, really? So in Alaska to Shekpuk Lake is one of the big kind of molt migration destinations where birds that are non-breeding younger birds or failed uh, will fly to this big lake where there's a bunch of good grazing lawns uh, huh. to just drop all their feathers and make hang, themselves hang fat for the summer. Are most of these molt birds too? Are they younger? Are they because uh, you know we have it? It is kind of a guessing game, and it's not everyone knows a lot about them yet. If I'm right, but are they right. generally like what I've understood is they're one and two year olds and failed nesters? Correct. Right, right, and that uh, we don't know how many of like what proportion of one and two year olds are doing this, uh, and we don't know what proportion of because not all make molt migrations at least not in illinois and not all failed nesters make molt migrations uh so there seems to be a lot of variability 
uh, in that. But yeah, it's generally younger birds and younger birds are less likely to have a successful nest as well. Uh, so even the ones that are breeding the three and up are probably probably younger birds as well. Is that when they begin nesting? Is that three? Yep. And then they have a greater chance of failing because of inexperience? Yep. Yep. Inexperience. Uh, maybe didn't have the energy reserves. Uh, I don't know why all, but yeah, definitely lower nest success in younger birds. So then those, is there kind of a general area that these birds go to? I mean, we always kind of talked and assumed, hypothesized amongst ourselves that, geez, maybe these birds only go from let's say uh, Southern Minnesota up to Bemidji, Minnesota. Is it, is that not correct that they tend to like, are they going up to Hudson Bay? Are they going I, that long distance? Do you think in general, or is uh, that- I can only talk about the birds I'm familiar with. So these Mississippi flyway kind of Illinois, Wisconsin birds. Uh, but it's from what I've seen and they're all long distance molt migrations. Like I, we haven't, confirmed any shorter distance like staying within the united states or just going up to southern ontario okay they've all been up to kind of northern coastal grazing meadows so you could stretch that most birds are probably going to do something similar whether it's to a different place or whatever yeah yeah and that's i'm i'm looking at a paper right now out of uh south dakota by Dieter and anderson i think i read that actually Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's one of the, one of the few kind of, it's like 10 years old or so. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. You got it. Is this, is this molt migration? Would you consider it a new pattern or is this something that has always existed in a lot of different migratory birds? I think it's always existed. Like even pre, let's say discovering the greater in Rochester, Minnesota and reintroduced them. I mean, there was a time and maybe you could fill us in. I don't know how much you know the history, but the Greater Canada Goose, did they exist in high numbers, say, in the uh, early 1900s? Or is that not known? Uh, not in the early 1900s. And we have so we have some historical records. I've been thinking pre-settlement, uh, but we have some records from like bone piles from Native Americans. Hmm. Uh, so we can get some population estimates based on those, uh, which we think scop used to be the most populous duck hmm. in North America, which is also insane to me. Not mallard snow geese were not, yeah. not a very large well, or anywhere near as large of a population. That, that kind of makes sense though, because the the changes in the land use have really allowed that switch to occur. Right. Being that if you were mallard before your feeding options were pond weed yeah. and whatever else on a slough. Whereas now you've got all this crazy high carbohydrate corn to go feed on. And it allows for probably easier, but better survival. I'm sure throughout winters and yep. easier, like reproductive like buildup. Yeah. Yeah. And there it's, it's interesting. It's one of my big interests, why some species are able to exploit, agricultural environments so well uh compared to others and kind of how that time frame so thinking about snow geese and white front speckle bellies uh snow geese obviously kind of started moving out of the coastal marshes down louisiana and texas uh more than 40 or 50 years ago 
Whereas we really haven't seen that change uh, in speckle bellies until like the last 20 or 30 years. So you're saying they're they're going down there now, whereas they weren't? Well, no. So they've always gone down to the Gulf Coast, but now they're moving up into Arkansas and Mm. uh, inland, even Texas, the rice fields and exploiting those habitats and then taking advantage of cornfields like in Illinois on their way back north that historically did not occur. So they've shortened up their migration routes. Shifted. Shifted. Okay. Yeah. Slid, yeah, shifted slid sideways. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's, and yeah, I, I attribute most of that to the changes in land use. Yeah. Whereas like the, the water, the more water-based ducks, the ones that aren't as, ones that aren't as comfortable on land being all the divers, it's rare to see them in a dry field. Yeah. Yeah. But that's interesting that the, the scalp was, I, that's all news to me. Well, make it, but could, it does make complete relative. sense now that we talk about yeah. it because agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's, there were more scalp then than now. It just means that relative to mallards, there was more. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, yeah. could, it could be either way. Right. But just being the most populous doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's more populous back then than it is now. Right. Right. So, well, I would guess I would guess that it is uh, that there were a lot more of them back then, but mostly yeah. because of habitat, habitat. destruction. Yeah. Yep. I mean, we the habitat that we still have, especially in the Midwest, is just garbage. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's silted in. We've got all these channelized rivers. We don't have the. Yeah, the functioning riverine wetlands like we used to. Yeah, but no, that's a whole another no story. Basins, uh, yeah. Let's not get depressed. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Keep this positive. But Canada, yeah, yeah. but Canada geese continued to excel as far as the greater Canada, right? Yeah, yeah, they're still doing uh, pretty well. We may have seen a little bit of a plateau in there. <clears throat> or are you talking? No, so no, giant no. Canada geese and greater Canada geese are different. So are you talking uh, about like let's, the let, well, what's, population? The giants are what we have here. Yeah. Yeah. In the central for the most part, probably, huh? Well, no, you I mean, get a lot get of both. Yeah. Yeah. You get a lot of the graders. So I think they're it's the prairie. And what do you have in Illinois? Excuse me. And what do you have where you're at? Uh, so we have the giants, uh, but we also have graders. So the, the subarctic nesting, the ones that nest up along Hudson Bay. It's okay. it's interesting. Like you could, I mean, we could probably have a, a whole podcast just discussing yeah, we the could. differences <laughs> between geese that look identical to each other almost. Yeah. Like like you said, so I mean, what's the body difference between a greater and a giant? A couple pounds? Uh so that's that's another really interesting thing. There is <laughs> so it's okay. Uh, and there's been one study by Jim Leafler, uh, who works for Canadian Wildlife Service now. Uh, but basically, he took goslings from Akaminsky Island, which is kind of off the coast. And we always thought they were a smaller, like, subspecies uh, and raised them on the mainland with geese from there. And he raised them under the same conditions and they turned out to be the exact same size and everything else was the same. So really, we're kind of moving away from these subspecies because it's, well, one, they can interbreed. So yeah. that kind of rules it out as being a subspecies or a separate species. But two, it's 
it's just based on kind of their nurture, where they were raised, what resources they were raised on that really dictates that mm. size. Yeah. So based upon textbook, how many subspecies of Canada goose are there? Oh, gosh. Uh, I want to say, I want to say seven. It used to be seven. I'm going to have to Google this because I used to know this by heart and see even, even I've my project. More. So we catch these geese in winter and we thought a bunch of them were these subarctic breeding geese that were smaller. So we measure like their bill length, their skull length, the length of their leg. Uh, and then there's like this dichotomous key that tells you what subspecies that falls into. Based well, we on, ranged, based on those measurements, right? Based on those measurements, we ran genetics and it didn't match up to the measurements. And then looking at the transmitter data, so where we can actually see them nesting, didn't match up either. So it's kind of we don't manage geese in subspecies right now. So right now we're kind of worried about what we call temperate nesting geese, which are the graders, giants, uh, and then subarctic nesting, the interiors. Which is interesting because where when we were this is even that long ago, like Minnesota had separate goose hunting zones based, in the early two thousands primarily. Yeah, even even before that, I think based specifically on that uh, eastern prairie population. Yeah, that was that was in danger, and I think that's those restrictions have gone away, and it's just a goose zone now. Yeah, so right. Yeah, and. Minnesota and Wisconsin, rightfully so. I mean, we just talked about how it really wasn't that long ago that these populations were really suffering, but they've been a lot more cautious and kind of pushed for keeping those subspecies or different breeding areas separated in our management. Which is kind of uh, uh, extra heartache as a hunter trying to <laughs> trying to, to deal with just to keep those in mind. I remember there was days when we were hunting in western Minnesota and it's 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 an unbelievable goose hunting area and we'd have geese nonstop coming in and you shot your one and you because right. you couldn't have the regular two or three bird limit like the rest of the state because the EPPs came through. Oh yeah. And so I was like, Oh man, this is dumb. And you didn't really no one really understood why. And there was not a real great this there there was explanations, but you know, if you didn't take the time to explain understand it at that point you weren't going to get it so yeah people were frustrated yeah. over it, but it's kind of yeah the scene and i won't say that kind of stuff is completely pointless or not worthwhile but we're definitely seem to be moving away from that a little bit right now yeah i was just gonna say because as a hunter the cpp thing was a big deal like we, had, we did a lot of hunting by fergus falls or in that area and there in mm -hmm. particular is where that was really a big deal like to where i was even at some hunt camps where we frequently had uh, biologists come and, and take measurements and take a look at what we got. They really didn't have anything to do with enforcing any laws on us, but they wanted to know what it was we were exactly shooting. And don't hold me to this to other people listening out there, but that doesn't seem to be a concern anymore. Right. Right. Which is interesting. It's just funny yeah. how we, like we were talking, how just a uh, couple millimeters in a, you know, bill size is a different species of goose and can actually determine a lot to how their lives really lead out. I mean, not, that's not the determining factor, but that's based on that. There are different species. And from there, they do a lot of different things than one with 
a three inch longer, a three millimeter longer bill or however that works. So it's kind of neat to see yeah. that. You know, yeah. the duck yeah, world, like cool different, different ducks are different ducks and there's not, there's no confusion between right. a mallard and a wood duck. But geese, yeah. unless you really have trained on or really paid a lot of attention, you don't know which species of goose you're holding for the most part. Right. Right. Ryan, since this is in your wheelhouse, I want to talk about this. I think I might talk about this. I, I, I like to talk about this subject a lot with a lot of other hunters, but in your opinion, how big do the biggest Canada geese get? <laughs> oh, oh man. Oh yeah. I've I've spent enough time around South Dakota to know that because you know this is a, this is a hot topic. Maybe a little less now, but it's a it's a hot debate. Oh, it's still yeah. there. There, I fifteen pounds. I you're, you're saying is the biggest. And have you actually shot have, or had in one of your projects a goose that big? We have not had one in my project that big. Uh, and I've never I've never weighed geese, so I don't know, but. We have caught a lot of geese for this project and not one of them has been over 15 pounds. And I mean, we deal with some pretty big fat city park geese. So if it's, if it's going to happen, I would have thought it would be there. Yeah. Where they're not expending energy and eating a ton of food. Yeah. 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 You hear a lot about the 18, 19, 20 pounders. And <laughs> all I know is from like, man, this is in like early two thousands on the refuge forums. There was a, uh, free six pack of like $400 decoys going out to anyone who could physically produce a 20 pound goose. You know, everybody said they had one in the freezer and they shot them all the time. And I think those decoys are still waiting to be given out. So. Yeah. And if I remember right, I think as each year went by, they lowered the weight. Yeah. Oh, really? That's right. Yeah. And I think it got down to 16 pounds and those decoys never got claimed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a, there's a goose hunting, which, I don't know. I've got some qualms about hunting competitions. Oh, for sure. But I want to say there's a goose hunting competition around Winnipeg that some of my buddies took part in to see who could kill the heaviest limit of Canada geese. I'd oh, be wow. interested to to see what what see the what, max what, was. What a weight was like a like a fishing limit. Yeah, <laughs> limit on geese. <laughs> They kind of, yeah, I, I would expect the average, the average in those contests, something like that would probably be a 12 pound goose and people thought they were big, yep. I bet. Yeah. Yep. So if you had a group of big geese, the average weight in your opinion is probably, I'd say 12 pounds. That's that, if they were big, big. And I would say, yeah. yeah, that's, that's on, that's on the plus side. Yeah. Yeah. And that's even, so I, I actually just caught a big old male. So I'll give you a little backstory, but. We we caught a goose locally to do some observations on, put a transmitter on. I, I showed off and all the geese were on the water except this one, uh, I call them kindergartens. It was a adult pair with like 20 goslings uh, that they, I assumed were just watching for the day, but they've continued to watch over all of them uh, for the last two weeks. He was, I mean, he was, everybody tried to run. He kind of turned on me, got aggressive. I shot a net over him, <laughs> grabbed him. He put up a pretty good fight, beat the snot out of me for a little bit. I weighed him in kilograms and my conversion's not great. I'm thinking, man, this bird has to be 15 pounds. Got back and converted and it was like 13.3. 
pounds. Uh, and that was huge. Yeah. And that was I, a big one. I, yeah. I thought that was the biggest goose I'd ever seen at that point. Yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. In my opinion, there's your answer. If it's 13, it's a monster. Yeah. 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 It's a respectable bird for sure. Did you say this pair had 20 goslings? Yeah. So and I need to read up on my literature on this. They were not all their goslings. Uh, oh, really? But yeah. So there are creches, which is when kind of one pair of ducks or a couple pairs of ducks will get together and just kind of amalgamate broods, join them all together. Uh, and I know geese, like I thought they would kind of take turns watching over these, like I said, kindergarten groups, but that's not the case with these, this little flock I'm watching right now. Uh, so I don't know. I, I'd be really interested to know if they're, parents died if they just the other parents just ditch them and or what what the deal is and look at kind of the genetic makeup of all those goslings see if they take them in kind of like that uh that hen merganser have you seen the pictures of that thing around? <laughs> yeah it's yeah got, what, right like 50 or 70 like yeah. babies with it now yeah there's there's no way that's physically possible yeah. that those were all hers so they had to have come from another Just picking up some other ones pair. along the way yeah Doing some trolling as it's cruising along the marsh, <laughs> yeah. the marsh edge. <laughs> well, we've talked a lot of kind of cool stuff here. Um, you know, one thing that I always am kind of interested in is just like how like duck movements actually during a during the season. Like, how far does a duck typically migrate at night? Um, they do. Uh, I'm just from my own history i i have to expect that most duck migrations happen overnight um this is a guess and you can confirm or deny um like kind of how far do they it was like a typical duck migration of like say a mallard let's talk mallards the most common duck and the best duck <laughs> um, well some would say on. most overrated too. yeah whatever <laughs> those guys don't know how to blow a duck out we'll say but <laughs> anyways um so like i mean what like let's 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 take a duck that's in in southern Canada and weather's coming and what's like a what what would be a, a general migration pattern for that duck you know, in terms of leaving time? I mean, this is like you know I don't need specifics, but I mean, are they flying five hundred miles? Are they flying a hundred miles? Like just to get out of a and and maybe another thing that's kind of cool is how much like like a geographical imprinting you could call it do they rely on do you think in terms of like where they're going yeah yeah so i and i am not as well versed in mallards as i should be uh i think there's a lot more variation in mallard migration than the geese i'm used to like we know that there's some mallards that will migrate all the way from southern canada to arkansas and kind of the last weeks of October. And then there are some that will, you know, just continue to fall the snow line down and only get to Kansas or whatever. So cal um, calendar birds, we call those versus like the weather birds. Yep. So there's, and we call it facultative or obligate migrants. So facultative is they're just moving to where they can get the resources they need. Whereas obligate are like blue and teal. And we usually kind of define species as this, but it's not a, mm -hmm. it's not a straight line. Like no, it but doesn't there's mean definitely, all birds. 
There's definitely differences in terms yeah, of yeah trends. Like a canvas back, canvas is back is an obligate, right? Here. Yeah, I would say. Uh, uh, I don't <laughs> know. I so like. I mean, I think about canvas backs, and they go down to Catahoula in November. Uh, yet you also see some on the Mississippi and Iowa, some of the pools Wait. around home that I mean will stay there all winter long as long as there's open water above the dams. That's interesting because like. For me, you could, I, I don't know the exact date, but like that second, middle of October. Yeah, second to third week of October, you're going to see canvas backs here, regardless if the weather's been 80 yep. or if it's 30. Oh, really? Yep. So we actually have old photos. We probably could find them here where it's like teal, mallards that maybe even aren't fully green yet and canvas backs. Yep. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always based on the time. And I'm like, it never mattered for us on weather for those birds. Yeah. yeah Unless, some, oh, go ahead. Some species, I'm sure, do have kind of stronger temporal affinity than others. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that about canvas facts. Or I never thought of it that way. That's like the strongest one that I can think of. Like whenever I think of a bird migrating based on time, like, if if I was ever just going to pick a date when I had to start throwing canvas back decoys and I'd just say October 18th through October 27th, mm-hmm. some random dates, but I mean, that's about when it's going to be. That's when we're going to see canvas backs. In which the can still would push hard at, at freeze up, snow up, yeah. ice up, whatever you want to call it. You would, of course, see them then too with everything else. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. And there's, and I think mallards have a little bit of that too. So like we'll just, like it can be warm and all of a sudden northeast part of South Dakota over a two week period is going to go from a few ducks to quite a few ducks in late October, even though we maybe didn't get weather. Those just ducks are just showing up. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Neat. Um, Neat. What? Um, this is another thing I've just been talking to. Like I, I love just talking to hunters from other areas and like when I travel different places. I love just kind of, even if I'm not hunting, I love to know like how hunting works in different places. And you, since, especially since you spent some time in Arkansas, maybe you've noticed this and just from your, uh, like the telemetry studies, the GPS type stuff is, it almost seems to me that there's like an imaginary line. And I'm going to say it's probably somewhere in Nebraska to Kansas. If we're going to talk central and Mississippi flyaway. Yeah. Cent- Kansas and Nebraska and then east, wherever that ends up to, like probably Illinois, like northern yeah. Illinois. Southern uh, Illinois versus northern Iowa. Illinois. And yeah, and you, same and with you, Missouri. And you hit this line, and once those ducks are north of that, and once they go south, you don't see them again in the fall. Whereas if you're south of this line, those ducks can move north and south on a daily basis based on weather yeah like here in south dakota i feel like once a duck leaves say i'm hunting the missouri river once that duck leaves the missouri river and it hits uh maybe it doesn't go very far because it's just a little push and it goes to kansas city or uh mountain city or somewhere like that in missouri like we're never gonna see that duck back hmm but it seems no like, matter what the weather does. Yeah, no matter what the weather does. Really? It seems okay. like 
a lot of people who hunt in Arkansas, Louisiana, northern Missouri, that area, Oklahoma, Texas, I hear them talk about weather and rain really affecting how those birds that will come back from the south back up north. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys have any like actual studies to show that that happens or just daily like travel patterns to show that those birds move like that. And actually I was talking to uh, Drew Palmer who hunts in Southern Kansas. Oh yeah. Uh, and he talked about how they see those birds migrate huge distances. And maybe that's part of it from Oklahoma back way up into Kansas. Um, but it just seems like, especially like the hunting I've done in Arkansas and talking to people that those guys talk about seeing ducks bail out of Louisiana back up into Southern and central Arkansas in on a whim almost just because it got warm real quick. Right. Right. And that's, so these are my thoughts. Uh, and I don't have much, much support. Uh, but I mean, every, every decision a duck makes, uh, is kind of balancing reward to risk. So my thought is kind of, uh, and I mean, these, these ducks, or at least these species have been migrating down these same flyways forever. Uh, so the, a lot of this is kind of genetic hardwired stuff where they just have this knowledge, but I think there must be some threshold where it's too dangerous to stay that far north of like where they know their safe habitat. So where they know it's not going to be frozen. And I don't know, I don't know what that kind of energetic limitation is. Uh, but it seems to me like, like say Kansas, they know they're eventually going to be able to fly to Texas in a few hours and have some open water somewhere down there. Whereas like South Dakota, Nebraska, uh, a lot of these species just know that if it gets cold, they aren't going to have the energy or at least they're going to kind of be on a pretty thin line if they do make it down far enough south to get to some that would make sense good resources yeah Yeah, and that's that's my best thought i i totally agree and again that's not absolute there are of course mallards that stick around in minnesota all winter long but yeah for the most part we i i would agree with that they even if we do get a warm-up even where i hunt in illinois it doesn't seem like we got any mallards back last yeah, season once, until once, later in February and March. Yeah, once they're gone, we're duckless. Well, yeah, once hmm. once they bail, we just don't see them, unfortunately. So it'd be cool because like this past and this this past actually season was a really good example that we had a a huge freeze up in really really early November. It got super cold. And we had a huge push of ducks come through, and then all of a sudden it was warm for a while after that, for like 10 days. And we had all the stuff that froze open back up and we were sitting kind of in like this no man's land of ducks where the ones that held tight were up North of us yet. And their stuff had opened up and the ones that had pushed South, well, they didn't come back. So we kind of sat here with Meh, thinking it should be awesome. And it's right, right at prime time. And we're like, Oh, this is interesting. We don't have much for ducks around. <laughs> you kind of never got your season back. Did you? Not really. Yeah. We had a, a couple oh, of like yeah. one and two day bursts and that was about it. Mm-hmm. so yeah it was just a, a really strange kind of season that was that. a hard hard push i was out here for that yeah that push i don't remember exactly when it was 
it was like the third or fourth or something like that. Yeah, it was a, it was a hard push. It was one of the bigger migrations I've possibly ever seen or oh, right really? up there. Cool. Yeah. And, and I just got to throw this in as a side note, uh, goes to show as, as a hunter, what these birds can, can do to you. I thought that was going to be one of the most phenomenal mornings I've ever had. And we shot, not that. we shot two ducks, yeah. maybe one of the most, <laughs> one of the more disappointing hunts I've ever been on. Oh yeah. Breaking well, ice for like two miles thinking it's going to be amazing. And I mean, we just sat there and watched not a lot of ducks around that. No, day. I got some cool photos. Yeah. yeah, that's about it. Got some photos of waiters. That was cool. Oh uh, yeah. Hmm. Oh, so, cool, man. So to go back to the molt thing real quick too, do, is there a, a, duck molt migration like the early who that that i'm not sure about i i if there is it's not as long distance as geese like i they'll definitely go to bigger lakes or like big cattail marshes and molt together but i don't think they're making long distance migrations to do yeah. that I've noticed, I have noticed at times, like I noticed in the spring, like South Dakota, we raise a fair amount of ducks. I noticed that you don't see them on the small ponds anymore. Um, come mid-June, late June, they're all gone. And so they are presumably on that bigger stuff where they sit out their flightless periods. Yeah. I assume due to just ability to hide better than on a 20 by 20 stock dam or something like that they were using before. Yeah, yeah, it's all about avoiding that point. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Man, do you have anything else that you, that you think is cool that people would be interested in? Uh, just, and I was chatting with one of my good buddies, Joe Lancaster, uh, who did his dissertation down the Mississippi Alluvial Valley, uh, Mississippi State. Just Mallard's nocturnal use. Uh, so a lot of people think that that mallards stay on refuges uh, all day long, and that might be the case. But they're so heavily influenced by hunting uh, that a lot of times they'll leave those refuges at night uh, and go kind of take advantage of food resources on private land or public hunting areas at nighttime just because there's so much pressure during the day. We even think that hunting probably influences distribution i mean large scale across the landscape uh, oh, yeah. to some extent i would i would ab absolutely agree with that especially uh, if you if you want to talk about urban geese and because you're hunting geese that are being hunted and hunted and hunted by people almost every day uh, you can actually watch i feel like watch the times they leave their roost to go out to feed as the season moves later and later and later, and eventually it reaches a point where at some point they're leaving after shooting time. And that's just on a small scale, but you can see that happen. I mean, in any small town that holds a few hundred geese where people hunt them regularly, you'll see yeah. that. Yeah, definitely. What are, what are kind of your thoughts on Rochester and trends and goose abundances there? Man, I haven't been there for a while. Yeah. Um, it's been, I don't think I've hunted there for 10 years. I mean, Bill has, mm -hmm. but it, it seems like from what I've gathered, places like that tend to get, I think enough migration through that you are the, and migration into it, 
that you still have goose numbers coming out on a daily basis, especially based on weather too. Yeah. You know, the, the migration patterns have changed there. And some of the people argue that with me a little bit, but they've changed. You kind of asked about numbers, correct, Ryan? Yep. It's down. Like there's no doubt it's down from when it used to be. Cause I started hunting there a lot when I was 19 and, uh, you know, that was the back end of its huge numbers it used to get. Oh, okay. Um, and it seemed to start changing, started changing then. And there's, there's, there's still a lot of geese that filter through there, but, um, it seems they seem to get their pushes more when they have to, like when the weather tells them that they have to be moving South, um, which is, is kind of obvious, but, but the numbers are not the same. And I have a few theories on that. I just think they're learning how to spread out. Right. More than anything. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what I was getting at is how, how just that hunting pressure is maybe that's one example I've thought about. Same with uh, some of the historic goose hunting areas in Missouri and Southern Illinois. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really hard to kind of tease apart the influence of hunting versus changes in land use and Open all these other factors. But yeah, I, I'm kind of leaning towards that hunting's maybe influencing these distributions a lot more than we, we realize. I think on, on actually two ends, it, it happens. Um, I think there's a trend that has happened here in the past. that's probably really become big in the last 10 years, 20 years. That wasn't really a thing before is people farming for ducks. You know, you look at like yeah. the habitat flats of the world. I mean, that's a duck destination now. It's right. I mean, it was a thing that did not exist. I mean, them ducks went to the area cause there's a couple of refuges there, but they were not going to Tony's cornfield 20 years ago. Whereas now, I mean, how many birds does he, he hold and holds for a long time that weren't, that were probably going south from there. And now they're yeah. staying. And I've got, I don't know. I've, I've got some qualms about that because I, so I've, I've worked for Mizzou uh, and been around a lot of those refuges and Tony obviously does an incredible job, but you have to give a lot of that credit to Missouri department of conservation. They've just done yeah. an incredible sure. job, especially the other thing I want to talk about is corn is really good for hunting. It's not as good for ducks as you would think. Uh, I've heard that actually. You mean the diet, the diet aspect of it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So they, they need a lot of these uh, kind of minerals, essential amino acids, uh, that kind of stuff that corn just doesn't have. I mean, it's a really good source of carbohydrates, but that's it. So a lot of our, our habitat studies, you actually see these ducks going to these moist soil areas uh especially at night because they're they can't they get shot in them during the day uh but yeah corn's great and i i mean tony definitely does an incredible job and i don't mean to diminish that at all but i I also think he's set up to kill ducks i mean a a byproduct is that they're eating his corn but you know his main goal and and this and he's not the only one and that and i think in that area it doesn't happen up here really at all the laws are just a little bit different and the the train is different but i think again you get south of that kind of imaginary line down there into missouri and all of a sudden there's and in kansas probably has it a lot of people are farming for ducks for and i know it happens a lot in like that tennessee kentucky um more so the mississippi flyway than the central yeah we tend to just have enough ducks and 
fewer hunters that we don't <laughs> right. need to like concentrate them so much. Um, and it's not as commercial either here. So yeah, but yeah, yeah, that's uh definitely lucky in that regard. So yeah, so I think you would you see that happen in you know a couple of a ducks moving based on just land changes on both sides, really. So yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. Interesting to look at and just all that kind of little things that happen to a duck or what a duck does or decides to do and how our lives and our choices as people can affect what happens even in a short time period for a duck migration, a duck population. It's kind of, it's interesting to look at if a person really pays attention, you can see a lot of that happening just within our lifetimes. And Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff isn't always natural. Sometimes it's better for the animals. Sometimes it's not. So, yeah, I think I think we're we're over we're over two hours here. <laughs> it, it goes quick. Is the cool thing. Yeah. No. It's it's this has been great. We'll have to get you back on Good here chat. some other time. Um, do you anything else you want to bring up at all? One one thing we do need to get from you is uh, where people can find you online at. Oof. I don't know if I want to be found. Uh, <laughs> well, you want to have people find your photos because you do have some for sale, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. That, that's always a plus. Yeah. Uh, like you, I was super creative. Actually, I shouldn't say that. What is your is yeah. your website name, Phil? PhilConkey.com. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was uh, just as original and mine is RyanAskren.com. Uh, so that's how you can find my website. You can look me up on Instagram at Ryan Askren. Not a, I'm, I'm really not a great photographer. I just am obsessive enough that I like ducks enough that I stumble across some decent shots. You know, you're, you're probably in the same boat I was in. Oh man, not that long ago, like five years ago. Like I, I didn't touch my camera other than when I was taking photos of ducks. Yeah. So I like, developed a really good technical understanding of photography, but I didn't have a lot of like interest or desire to do all this other stuff. Then all of a sudden I thought, you know what, I've got all this gear. Why don't I start using it to like capture like moments of our hunts and things that I'm doing that other people would like to see. Plus I'd like to have like a memento of. And so all of a sudden I went from one year for like basically never taking my camera with actually hunting to now I take it a lot and I don't, I don't try to be obnoxious with it, but I like to capture some of those cool things that, you know, that are like iconic for the hunting world. And the, you know, I've got my own decorations in my house and my garage and my man cave and that kind of stuff. So rather than have to buy prints, you know, I do like prints, but it's cool that people come over and say, Oh, that's cool. What's that picture of that dog? Oh, that's my dog. I took it to hunt one day. Oh, that's cool. So yeah. I, when I was looking through your photos, I was kind of like, yeah, he's exactly doing what I was doing a few years ago. And I suspect, <laughs> and I go, I suspect within a few years, he'll probably be doing the same thing I'm doing now is taking more photos of all the other kind of stuff too. So yeah, yeah, definitely continuing to evolve. It's just something kind of fun. So yeah, definitely yeah. take a look at Ryan's page. Um, I like too, Ryan, that you have uh, some pictures of some of the projects you're working on too. I noticed on your page. Yeah. I try to, I try to use it for good. I mean, I try to help, educate folks kind of raise awareness about things and just yeah i there's a big disconnect before what i do as a scientist between what i do as a scientist and the general public and i think that's really unfortunate and that we could foster a lot better uh, kind of appreciation for resources and management and research 
with the public than what we do now. Yeah, the whole science community is kind of left out to hang out to dry here lately. It seems like so. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of nice to <laughs> it's kind of nice to have people seeing what actually happens in the science world and that real people are doing this work and they're doing it for the you know not for their own monetary benefit, but to actually have you know beneficial results in the end. Right. Right. Well, yeah, is it true too? And this could be a misunderstanding. And and Ryan, this is a question I had for you. I thought of a couple of days ago. I've heard um, on other podcasts, and and correct me where I could be wrong here, but biologists, scientists, however you want to word it, you guys kind of take an oath. Is that true? Like that you don't have preconceived notions of test results or anything. You just want to state the facts that are right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. You definitely don't want to have any sort of bias or confirmation bias uh in your work so yeah we tried to keep it yeah. as empirical and kind of rooted in scientific method as possible yeah you come into it with a hypothesis and then your evidence proves or disproves that right yeah. right well yeah supports it support yeah support yeah we never we yeah, never prove, prove anything disprove, which yeah, is true. frustrating yeah, but you, you rarely nothing is ever 100 percent true yeah yeah but. No, no. Appreciate it, guys. It's been it's been a great chat. Yeah, man, it is. Um, Bill, do you have anything else you want to touch base on? Or? Oh, I have a lot of things I could touch base on yet. But yeah, <laughs> due to due to time here, we should speed it up. So maybe we'll make this quick, Ryan, but it's one more question for you. And this is something that's been heavy on my mind for a long time. Yep. And that is in Minnesota, I'm speaking more than anything, but I think this exists all around uh, early goose season. It, it It's one of my favorites. It It's always been one of my favorites. Uh and, and early goose season started to reduce uh, Canada, uh, resident Canada goose populations a bit. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Now, do you feel like that hunting pressure is doing that idea a disservice because it went from more liberal limits to then it opened up more areas like water when it used to just be field hunting only? And then there's even an early, early season in August, and they seem to keep I don't, if anything, I would say that goose hunting and goose harvesting numbers have gone down. Is this true? Do you think? Uh, I don't think so. And I don't, I'm not as familiar with Minnesota, uh, but a lot of, and again, this is kind of my thoughts. This isn't necessarily supported. I don't have literature to back this up, but my, my thought and kind of my take on everything is that, we're harvesting about the same number of birds, regardless of season length, regardless of when we're doing that. Uh, so it's kind of this idea that there's a X proportion of the population that was just meant to die, that uh, by killing, we aren't going to decrease the population at all. I mean, they just weren't, weren't fit individuals. And yeah, that even with these added seasons, we're still killing about that same proportion. It's not really additive. Mortality. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's just yeah. the, All the number. Yeah. The number is going to die, whether it happens in August, September, October, November, or September, October, November. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is influenced by their adaptability to hunting pressure. So it mm -hmm. might, I mean, it might seem like they're less being killed, but is it because they're less being killed per hundred day? Or is it because there's actually less killed over the entire season? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. We've seen that, I think, here a little bit. That your first week is always the first week, and it's awesome. And then after that, it kills <laughs> out. 
But just the fact that it's a longer season, you're going to have some more more taken that way regardless. Yep. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Cool, man. Yeah, well, no, that's good. Let's, we'll uh, wrap this up, let you get rolling here, and uh, we appreciate you uh, hanging in here for a couple hours. So, Yeah, hey, look forward to hearing more from you all. Yeah, no kidding. We'll have you on again for sure. It was awesome. <laughs> cool. Thanks, okay. Ryan. Yep, catch you Thanks, later, Ryan. Gentlemen. Have a good night. Yeah, bye.